Thank you. Good evening. Thank you for joining the um, September 12th, 2022 planning board meeting. That's a call the meeting in session. Um, board member Ariza, would you mind doing leading us in the flag salute? Of course. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States, United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Um, let's do roll call. Alan, are you are you going to be doing the roll call? Yes, I'll call. I'll give. I'll take the roll call. Um, just for the record, uh, President Sahaba and Board Member Curtis have excused absences. Um, I will call Board Member Ariza. Yes. Present. Um, Cisneros. Here. Present. Uh, Board Member Hong. Here. Ruiz. Here. And uh, Board Member Teague is absent. We have a quorum. Thank you. Um, that's moving on to agenda changes and discussions. Um, this is for changes that's not already noted in the agenda. And I would like to propose that even though um, we're not required to have a, um, I would like to propose to continue item 7A, given even though we're not required to have a full board, um, to do board election, um, but this has to do with our current outgoing president. And I think out of respect, he should be here to participate in, in um, board elections. So I would like to continue that to, um, to the next meeting. Do we have a second? Do I need? Do, do, do we need a motion at all? If, if we need a motion, I'll offer the motion to continue it to the next meeting. Uh, sure. Let's do that, yeah, let's do that. And we can just put on the next agenda. And if I may interrupt, we also wanted to um, continue the estuary item, which is on the book, on the- um, That is always list already noted on the agenda. As continued, right. yes. and it'll be to the next meeting. Okay, great. Yeah. Correct. Okay, so we have a motion. Um, do you have a second? I'll second. Thank you. Alan, would you mind um, roll call the vote? Board member Riza? Aye. Cisneros? Aye. Hong? Aye. Ruiz? Aye. And that motion passes. Um, moving on to oral communications. Anyone may address the board on a topic on a topic that's not on the agenda under this item by submitting a speaker's information slip subject to the three limit, three minute time limit. Um, do we have any speaker information slip? At this, At this time, time, we have no public speakers. Thank you. Okay, let's close that section. Uh, moving on to consent calendar. We don't have um, any item on the consent calendar. So moving on to regular agenda item. Um, I, agenda 7A has been continued to the next meeting. Now let's move on to agenda 7B, public hearing to review and comment on the draft housing element and zoning amendments to address state fair housing law and accommodate the regional housing needs allocation for the period 2023 to 2031. Does the staff have a presentation? Yes. Um, can you see the presentation on your screen? Yes. Yeah. 
Yes. yes. And I, um, Andrew, before you start, I would like to remind everyone, please mute your phone when you're not speaking. Thank you. Good evening, President Ruiz and members of the Planning Board. My name is Andrew Thomas. I'm the Planning Building Transportation Director for the City of Alameda. I'm going to um, provide a brief overview and presentation on our general plan housing element and zoning amendment. Um, this is an effort that the Planning Board has um, has undertaken and has been actively involved in the update of the housing element and the associated zoning amendments um, over the last two years. Um, over those two years, we've had over 25 public workshops um, to work with the Alameda community um, to develop this new housing element for the city of Alameda and the associated zoning amendments to implement it. 16 of those workshops have been held by the planning board. So the planning board has really devoted an extraordinary amount of time and effort to help the staff and the city draft a housing element and then a comprehensive set of zoning amendments to implement that housing element. Every single one of these public workshops provided an opportunity for public input, um, for public debate about how best to structure those amendments. Um, every workshop was well attended um, by um, people on all sides of the issue of housing. Uh, the city council has also held several workshops during this two year period. Uh, the historic advisory board held a couple workshops on the housing element. The transportation commission has held a public workshop. Uh, the commission on people with disabilities has also held a public workshop. And then in addition to these board and commission public meetings, there's been a number of um, neighborhood meetings and, and um, uh, meetings where we just the staff essentially has gone out to talk to different neighborhood groups about the housing element. So it's been a major public effort, um, including staff, the public, um, and really under the leadership of the planning board. Um, the result has been, um, at least from staff's perspective, a huge success. Um, as you saw in your packet um, at the end of last month, we received a letter from the State Department of, of Housing and Community Development stating that our housing element, the work that all of you did over the last two years, um, will maintain Alameda in compliance with state law. So you have met the standard required by the state for a certified housing element. Um, their letter recognized the work that the planning board had put into this over these years and also recognized the zoning changes, which are so instrumental to making to actually implementing um, what needs to be implemented to comply with state law. That housing element and that letter confirm that we are going to be able to accommodate our regional housing needs as um, described in the housing element and that we will have and are affirmatively furthering fair housing as required by state law. What that letter also says is that this if our city council adopts this housing element and these zoning amendments, the city of Alameda will be certified as compliant with state law. And that is huge. Um, the consequences of non-compliance for Alameda or any other city in, in California of non-compliance are severe. Um, if you don't have a valid housing element as certified by the state, then you do not have a valid general plan. If you do not have a valid general plan, then you, the city starts losing its ability to pass ordinances or, or regarding zoning because all zonus, zoning 
ordinances need to be compliant with a valid general plan. You can also potentially lose land use control. What this means, because our our power to govern land is passed down to us by the state of California. It also means they can take that power away if we do not comply with state law, which means projects don't come to the city for review and approval anymore. They go straight to the state. And the state doesn't need to worry about our general plan and what our zoning requires because they're invalid. So if the city, it's really important for cities in California to maintain, um, compliance with state law if you if those cities want to maintain local land use control. Of course, if you're not in compliance with state law, you, you immediately become disqualified for a whole range of state funding sources for transportation, for parks, for housing. We, we in the city of Alameda depend on those funding sources. We rely on those funding sources to help fund these important public services and facilities. Of course, state law also has a prescribed series of fines that cities must um, pay and those fines increase until such time that the city does put forth a compliant housing element. And then of course, the minute you go out of compliance, you should expect lawsuits, which are expensive to defend. So when the state sends us a letter saying that if you, we adopt this housing element, we will be in compliance with state law. That is a huge accomplishment. Um, and. It's really uh, a tribute to the Alameda community and the planning board and all the people who participated over the last two years that we've gotten to this point. Um, just a minute on the housing element. Um, there's sort of two main areas. The planning board is very familiar with the housing element, but for the general public, anyone who may be watching. Um, the first is the regional housing needs allocation. This is a very, um, this was a large, a major hurdle to overcome your housing element, your draft housing element describes how we are going to make land available to accommodate 5,353 units over eight years. That was the challenge. Um, the housing element does that. It puts approximately 24% of that at Alameda Point. The Alameda community expressed this desire throughout this process. Put as much as you can at Alameda Point. Um, so a quarter of it is, is at Alameda Point. Another 15% of that allocation is allocated on sites on other vacant federal land, um, which is um, a priority and, and, and initiative at the state level as well to use public lands wherever possible to accommodate and allow for new housing. Our Northern waterfront picks up another quarter of the housing. Um, over the next eight years. And this is mostly from a series of projects that have already been through the approval process, Ensignal Terminals, Boatworks, Alameda Marina, and other vacant sites in the Northern waterfront. These are our old industrial waterfront sites. 19% are accommodated in our shopping centers. These are single use retail centers, which have great opportunity to add housing. So this housing element takes full advantage of that. And accommodates about 19% of the arena at shopping centers. Park Street and Webster Street are transit rich, mixed use corridors, um, but fairly small parcels, not real large, you know, large areas, not a lot of acreage on the Park Street and Webster Street corridor. So it pick, they pick up about 8% of the arena on a series of opportunity sites. And then the residential districts 
the R1 through R6 pick up the remaining 10%. The residential districts are by far the largest areas of all, everything on this list. Um, over 2,500 acres, over 16,000 individual parcels within the R1 through R6. This is also responsive to the Alameda community that was very, was concerned about um, the effect of adding a lot of new housing within the residential districts. So it's a fairly modest increase in the residential districts. Whoops. The other big major hurdle for the city of Alameda and frankly for every city in the state of California is that housing elements must also present a plan to affirmatively further fair housing. So this is not a plan to just sit back and say, hey, we're good, we don't discriminate, we're all right, everything's fine. You have to take real actions to make change. And this housing element and the zoning amendments crafted by the planning board achieve this. Um, in a number of ways, and um, we can talk about some of the specifics, but essentially um, the concept that all neighborhoods in Alameda must help by help us as a city accommodate our housing needs. So no neighborhood is better than another neighborhood. Every neighborhood needs to be zoned to allow for more housing. Um, secondly, that we treat all people and their individual housing needs equally. So if some people need low income housing, if other people need housing that is accessible for people with disability. Um, different kinds of people need different kinds of housing. So um, our zoning code makes those changes to ensure that we treat every housing type equally. Because if we're not treating different housing types equally, then we're not treating individual people um, equally. And then really, uh, two final things, remove all regulations that are fundamentally contrary to fair housing. Um, we have a letter from November of 2021 from the state um, describing our, some of our local charter amendments that has, and describes them types as um, fundamentally contrary to fair housing. And we do that by eliminating those regulations and focusing our, our zoning on what we call form-based standards. Standards that don't redress who lives in these places in the in a residential building, but what the residential building should look like, how tall it should be, what are the height limits, what are the setbacks, what are the design aspects that we're looking for, who lives within that building um, should not be something that we regulate through zoning. So we're at the end of a two-year process. You've received some letters just in the last few days, mostly, well, really from Alameda Citizens Task Force and Alameda Architectural Preservation Society. The basic gist of those letters is the zoning goes too far. We've loosened it up too much. We've made too much of an effort to affirmatively further fair housing more than is necessary. And that as a result, more housing will get built than we actually planned for. So that means we'll build, if, if they're correct, they will build, we will end up building more than 5,353 units in eight years, which means we'll build more than about 669 units per year. That number is significantly higher on a per year basis than Alameda has ever done. Um, there is another important 
aspect of this, which is the housing element and state law require an annual review. So every year we're going to check in. We've done it for the last 10 years and we'll do it for the next 10 years. So every year the city has to count the number of building permits it's issued. We will be able to look at where those um, permits have been issued and we'll be able to tell whether we are on track or not. And if we are not on track, we will need to make adjustments and that's required under state law, it's required under our housing elements. So if in fact, after the first annual review, we determined that we are far exceeding our expectations, that our zoning has become too lenient and we are generating other problems that we didn't anticipate, because we're exceeding our regional housing need requirements, we can make adjustments. We can rein it in. Um, if we are not meeting our expectations, as some advocates have argued, no, you haven't gone far enough. Well, we're gonna find out. We're gonna be able to track this year by year and we can make adjustments. So if one area of the city, let's say the neighborhoods as ACT and AAPS were concerned, uh, you know, we're gonna generate way more units than we projected, we'll be able to see that. And if other areas are not generating the number of units that we projected, we'll be able to see that. And you will be, the planning board holds a public hearing every year to review those numbers and to make recommendations to the city council for adjustment to that zoning. So you, the, the city and the planning board and the council will have a built-in process whereby to make adjustments if in fact um, things happen in a way that we didn't expect. Um, from staff's perspective, we are not at all worried that we have that we have that we have overzoned this that we have made it too easy to build housing this building 669 units per year is a huge hurdle for the city to overcome we think we've put the zoning in place but we're not at all concerned that we're going to exceed that number the example that is first and foremost in our mind is what we call the Senate Bill 9 indicator. In January of this year, the city of Alameda upzoned the entire R1 district to comply with SB 9. That zoning allows for a minimum lot size of 1,200 square feet, two units. So we effectively increase the density in the R1 to 73 units a year. That's higher than any of the zoning densities that we're proposing for the R1 through R6. We basically, as of January, any Alameda resident in the R1 could add four units on their property. That law has been in effect in Alameda. Oh, and the R1 is about 9,000 of those 16,000 units. Since January, we have not received a single SB9 application. So are we concerned that this zoning is gonna result in a flood of new housing in Alameda? No, we're not concerned. If anything, we're a little, we're probably more concerned by these SB9 indicators, um, which indicate that even though when you raise, open up the zoning, people for reasons that have nothing to do with zoning may not decide to add housing units. It's a personal decision for homeowners about their finances, their opportunities, what their interests are. So um, staff is feeling very comfortable that you have an excellent housing element. You've done a great job on the zoning amendments. And you've put placed the city 
and the city council in the ideal um, situation. So we are recommending and really concluding that, first of all, we just wanted to recognize like the planning board in my entire career, I've never seen a planning board put so, so much time and effort into a housing element and it, it shows. Um, the letter from HCD is um, quite a um, accomplishment and I just think the planning board should pat itself on the back. I also think it's time for the planning board to, to move this up to the city council. You have worked for two years on this. You have fine tuned the zoning. We think we have, you have fine tuned it just to where it needs to go. But at the end of the day, it's the city council that needs to make the final decisions. So we're proposing that we schedule a final planning board public hearing for your next meeting, um, at which time to make a final recommendation. You're, what we will be recommending is that you recommend that the city council adopt the housing element, adopt the zoning. Um, and to ensure compliance with state law. Uh, with that next meeting, we will bring what we're calling the addendum list. So um, as we review the document, as we get final public comments, there, people are pointing out typos and things that we need to fix. Um, and so we will be submitting that addendum list to you and we'll be submitting it, of course, to the city council. And then after hopefully the city council approves the housing element, we will also be submitting it to HCD because they want to see, the state wants to see every change that we make to this housing element from this point on between now, which is the version that they reviewed and when the city council adopts it. Um, and at this point, we only have four items on our addendum list. We have typographical error on page 19. Um, we want to add on program eight an additional bullet about local affordable housing bond measure. This is an issue that was raised by the housing element working group. We think it's a good addition, um, something to be considered um, by the planning board and council in the future. Um, there is a program statement on page 28 about eviction controls, which some people read in, from a different perspective, and we thought we should clarify that language. There's a sentence there on page 28 that generated some confusion. And then there's some addition issues on page E5, table E2, um, on the uh, other arena number, but the basic numbers are all solid. There's some internal numbers that don't add up, but it's essentially typographical errors. So that's the sort of our draft addendum list. We would be bringing something like this to the planning board at the next meeting, recommending approval of, or recommending that you recommend that the council um, uh, approve the housing element and zoning amendments. So with that, I'll conclude my presentation. I'm available to answer any questions. Alan Ty, Ty who's here with us tonight, of course, your secretary was instrumental in this effort, the housing element and the zoning amendments. So. He will certainly be helping me as well if you have any questions. With that, I'll conclude. And also, uh, Brian McGuire of our planning oh, staff is also here with us. And he's also spent an instrumental amount of time on this as well. Thank you, um, Andrew and Director Thomas, for your presentation. Before I open up for um, board questions and then um, public comments and then board comments, um, let the record reflect that um, board member Teague is able to join us. So now I'm gonna open up for board questions and then be followed by public comments and then um, 
um, board comments. Do you have any questions? Please raise your hand. Yes, board member Hum. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I know this is a question period, so my main thing will be questions, but I just want to say, you know, this is, is a major achievement, you know, since I work in this field for a city of Alameda to have gotten their housing element uh, certified. You know, how many cities throughout California is still struggling with that, uh, with, with um, getting the housing element certified, including quite a few number of Southern California cities, which were, which actually had to submit their housing elements, <clears throat> you know, much earlier than um, the Northern California cities. So it's a huge accomplishment. I know Andrew complimented um, the planning board for it, but I, I, I think the community involvement in the housing element was tremendous. And I, I, I know staff is being modest about it, but the staff work that went into the housing element, just arranging those multitude of community workshops, listening carefully, probably revising the housing element, you know, 25 times, and that's probably an understatement. Um, it just shows, it reflects on the really the good outcome that of the work that's been done. So I just want to lay that out there. Um, I did go through the staff report, just have a couple of clarifying questions. I don't know whether this will be one of the amendments, but I saw in the staff report, uh, and this was maybe a point raised by the housing element working group, that for the C1 district, there's a proposal to change the height limit rather than have it relate to the adjacent height limit in the residential district coming up with a uniform 45 uh, foot height limit. I didn't uh, quite understand, quite honestly, the logic of that change because I thought the existing height limit was a little bit more contextual and that it relates to the, what the adjacent heights are in the corresponding uh, properties. But I just want to understand um, the, the rationale behind that change, or if that's still a change that is going to be proposed in the zone. I'll, I'll take that one. Um, yes, so the draft zoning amendments now um, that are being circulated are show a 45 foot height limit in the C1 district, as opposed to what we had before, which said it's the it's whatever the adjacent residential is the highest you know adjacent residential zoning district. Um, we were there was a, a couple things kind of came to mind after reading the working group letter. One is we should be we should be really clear that if it's a transit corridor, then the adjacent residential district has a minimum height limit of forty feet. So um, we wanted to, we, we, the first thing that came to mind was well, we should make that clear. Like it's not the base district. Like let's say it's, you're on a transit route and you're in the R1, then your adjacent zoning would say, oh, R1, 30 feet. But wait, there's a transit overlay that says, if you're on a transit route, you get 40 feet. Um, if you're doing a four-story building with ground floor retail, we figured you needed at least 45 feet. Um, we also thought there was some benefit to actually just having a number as opposed to a reference to the height limit in the adjacent districts. I would also point out if you're in, 
you know, R5, R6, then your adjacent, your height limit is already 45 or 50 feet. So we started just thinking about it. Well, maybe the 45 feet just is about right. Um, since the, R, the C1 districts usually are on transit corridors, there's very few examples of a C1 that is not on a transit corridor. And, um, and uh, though many of them are in the R4 and R5 where the height limit's already 45 or 50 feet. So that was our thinking. Um, that's not, I don't think, you know, this is something if the planning board has a, a, a different opinion on this, I think um, it would certainly, um, you know, this is something we could continue to fine tune. If I may add, there's one other piece to it, and it, that is currently in the C1 district, the zoning, the height limit specifically limits it to uh, two stories, not exceeding 30 feet. So understanding that the ground floor is going to be a retail use, what the current zoning does really is just limit the residential, upper level residential to just one story. And so we want to be able to create a little bit more capacity to have maybe at least two stories. Two stories of living space above the retail so it doesn't the piece. adjacent height limit would if it's 45 say or 50 wouldn't that basically the 30 feet won't apply right that's right it wouldn't that's right yeah so it's just kind of on paper but it doesn't in reality most of the adjacent so unless you're right next to surrounded by single family homes you would probably likely get the higher higher height limit that might be in a, you know, R2 through R6, right? Okay, anyway, thanks for explaining it. I'm not gonna opine on how I feel about it. The other big question, and this is, I thought was a, a good point that was raised by uh, the Housing Element Working Group. The staff report talks about the challenge of having an inclusion housing requirement above 15% you know, for economic reasons, state requires approval and all of that. Um, how, however, for the non-pipeline projects, you know, you know, we're assuming quite aggressive, like almost 50-50% of low income and very low income units. So on one hand, we're saying it's not feasible for developers to build above 15%, but then we're relying on 50% of new projects to be in that category. And I, I, and I, and I you know, there's a proposal for the, for the considered a housing bond measure. What, what, other, what other factors led to staff concluding that it's realistic to uh, uh, you know, achieve that 50-50 split for new housing? Is it that there's a number of affordable housing sites out there or, or you know, are there like fee waivers or, you know, city owned? I mean, I just want to know how did we rationalize that it'd be realistic for the city to meet that quite aggressive, um, uh, you know, low, lower income housing percentage? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. Um. It's a great question and it constantly causes confusion. Um, I think the way to start this is state law does not require inclusionary housing ordinances. It, that, does, it, that is not a requirement of state law. Um, many cities in California don't have inclusionary housing ordinances of any kind. So if you imagine you're a city that doesn't have inclusionary housing 
how do you show that half of your arena will be available for lower income? How do you show that you're going to make housing available that addresses the needs of lower income households? And what state law says is, if you're relying on sites that are zoned in a way that permits multifamily housing by right, multifamily housing is more affordable than low density single family housing. And you have housing, your zoning allows for 30 units the acre or more. We will consider that, we the state, will consider that zoning that accommodates lower income housing types, because that's the kind of zoning that generates the kind of housing that is generally more affordable. So if you're relying on projects, so about half of our arena, we're relying on actual projects that have been approved. What state law says is if you've approved an actual project, and you know exactly how many affordable units will actually be provided, then you have to just count the affordable housing units. So if you look at our tables, you know, for the projects like Encinal Terminals and Boatworks, we just count the actual number of deed restricted units because that's what state law requires us to do. But for the sites where we don't have an approved project, where we're rezoning, let's say the shopping center sites, the shopping center zoning has a minimum density of 30 units the acre. It allows multifamily by right. And therefore state law says we can count those units as towards our affordable housing arena allocation. So what we did in our table, we, we first listed all the approved projects and, 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 and identified exactly how many units would be affordable based on the project approvals. And then we added in the sites to be rezoned, the total capacity. And because state law said we could allow for all of them towards all of those units toward the affordable categories or a portion of, we essentially allocated as necessary to meet the arena. Did that make any sense at all? No, it makes sense. I, I guess that's- And it was accepted by HCD. Yeah, we, yeah, that's know. the bottom line. That was accepted. So I don't want to like, yeah. like rock the boat there. Uh, but I, I guess I guess I'm skeptical that yes, you can count them, that these new projects would achieve a roughly 50-50 split, given how economically challenging it is to produce affordable housing. So, um, you know, so so I, I guess down the road when uh, HCD has has every city you know submit. Of course, very few cities are very few cities are able to meet their very low and low. So you know what happens when when that reality kind of sets in. Uh, I think I think what it does is this is so this is the structure of state law and the way housing elements are 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 regulated, but. You know, the city's responsibilities don't just end when you every eight years when you do your housing elements and you do your annual review and you need to keep mm -hmm. track of right. how many permits you're actually doing to see if you're on track. Um, the the larger issue, I think, is sure, we can get a housing element certified. We, we've shown we can do that. 
but the reality, and this is, I think, what you're getting at, mm -hmm. the reality is that housing prices are so high in the Bay Area. Just because a project is at 30 units the acre and is multifamily does not mean it's going to be affordable mm -hmm. to somebody who's in that lower income category. So good news, you got your housing element certified. Bad news is we still have an affordable housing crisis. And that's why those other programs are so important. That's why one of our things that we want to add to the addendum list, and we think this is really what it comes down to, is just it's money. Mm -hmm. Affordable housing needs to be subsidized. Inclusionary housing is subsidized by the market rate housing in the same project. So what that means is you get deed restricted low income housing in the project and the market rate portion, the 85 or 80%, which is market rate, has to you know be more expensive because it's subsidizing the very low. That is why we're thinking and I wanted to add language about um, really getting public discussion going over the next couple of years about an affordable housing bond measure. Yeah, yeah. There, the system just needs more money to subsidize affordable housing if we're really going to address the affordable housing yeah. crisis. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Bottom line. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, those are my questions. Thank you. Board Member Teague. First, I apologize for being late. Um, I was looking through the agenda item, trying to find a link to the zoning. Is it the appendix in the housing element that is the zoning amendments, or is there a document that I, I don't, there isn't a link? If you go to Alameda 2040, the website, the housing element website, you'll see the, the link to the zoning amendments is there as well. Okay, I missed that. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Any further board member questions? Board member Riza? Um, I just have a question and I'm, I don't know if this came up or not. Are there any concerns of um, developers kind of joining lots in residential districts? And are, are there any Kind of restrictions on that? Um, yes, that is something that there is nervousness, nervousness about, I would say. Like the concept would be, you know, a big developer comes in and buys up, you know, six homes in a row, tears yeah. them all down and builds affordable houses or builds, you know, a big apartment building. Um, that is a reoccurring fear. Um, I think the SB9 experience. Now it's only been nine months, but it has been nine months since we adopted that zoning. Um, that zoning affects 9,000 of the 16,000 property owners in Alameda who are in the residential districts. And this is a fear, you know, for residential districts. You, you don't hear that fear as much in the commercial areas, but, you know, um, you know, we haven't had a single developer come in and say, hey, I'm thinking about buying up these five parcels to build a big multifamily building because now with SB9, I can do, you know, a ton of, of, of subdivisions. Um, we don't see that. I mean, we're not hearing that 
at least in the first nine months of the SB9 uh, zoning amendments. Let's say we adopt this housing element, we adopt this zoning, and much to our surprise, that starts to happen. That means we're going to be exceeding our house. I mean, if it means we're meeting our housing objectives, then that's a good thing, right? What we're scared of is exceeding, like, you know, oh my goodness, we've opened up the floodgates. There's, I mean, really the fear is there's too much housing being built. That's the fear. And, you know, if that in fact happens, um, there's no indication that it will. But if it does, you're going to know within the first year. And if, if and it's not happening in the first year, you'll know after the second year if it happens. So the, 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 the planning board and the city council can always adjust the zoning. You may hear people say, oh, once you upzone, you can't downzone again. That's not true. You can't downzone if you're not meeting your arena. If you're failing to meet your housing goals under state law, then yeah, downzoning is a problem. And what state law says is if you're going to downzone in one location, you have to upzone somewhere else to compensate because you're not meeting your state obligations to, to allow for housing. So um, it's a concern, of course. I mean, it, it, it brings back images of you know the early days of redevelopment in america um, we don't think it's uh, something to lose too much sleep about just given the economics given what most alameda homeowners seem to be interested in which is not tearing down their house and selling their property and moving away from alameda just the you know just the opposite what we're seeing is Alameda property owners who want to stay on their property, want to keep their home, and maybe want to add one or two units in their backyard. And very few Alameda homeowners even want to do that. Um, you know, our challenge is to try to encourage more Alameda homeowners to do that. Um, you know, if, if we're successful there and it goes starts going rampant, well, we can always adjust. But I think the bigger fear is that we'll get two years into this next eight year cycle and we'll, and we'll all be going, oh my goodness, we're not generating the number of housing units we had hoped. What do we need to do now? Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. Well, number T. Thanks, Andrew. I did find it. It's under the housing element link. Um, yes. A question regarding uh, density bonus and building units within existing structures. So if someone was to apply for a density bonus for uh, expanding the number of units within their existing structure, could they request a waiver to build outside of the existing structure? Um, I think they could. You, you, there's no way to, this is a question about, um, for the benefit of the public and our new planning board member, this is a question that has come up a lot over the last few years. There's state law called state density bonus, which if a developer offers a, additional affordable housing, deed restricted affordable housing above and beyond our local requirement of 15%, which on its face is a good thing. Like that's a good thing. We're getting more affordable housing. It's really getting to the problem that board member Hom raised 10 minutes ago. Um, 
But what this state law says is basically, if a developer does that, you shall give them exemptions if they need it. You shall give them density bonuses if they need it. So I think the straight answer um, to board member Teague's question is yes. If somebody comes in and says, hey, I want to do, there has to be more than five units or else they don't qualify for state density bonus at all. I want to take my Victorian, or it doesn't have to be a Victorian, it can be any kind of house. And I want to do seven units. And I'm going to do additional deed restricted affordable units because your 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 inclusionary requires, you know, whatever, one. I'm going to do two deed restricted. They do get a bonus and the opportunity to waive local standards. So instead of seven units, they would get eight units. And they, I think they could come forward and say, hey, to fit eight units in this building, I need a waiver. And one of the waivers is I need to do an addition on the roof to and get that additional, is but it, only to the extent to get that additional unit. And is it five or more or over five? You have to be able to do five or more. Okay. So as AAPS proposed, if we limited it to four, then we would, at least in the beginning, skirt that problem. And if needed, we could expand on it. Um, yeah, it, it, if you limited it to four, like you can never apply for more than four, you, that would be a way of avoiding state density bonus. Not, not that really one, the, I'm trying to walk a line here and mm -hmm. it's, if we do four and we have a lot of people coming in and Andrew says, hey, planning board, we've had three people come in that want to do six. You guys should really be looking at changing that number. Uh, so, okay, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think it's, I, I think it comes back down to the idea of, it's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting, it's a, it's an interesting thing to worry about. Um, if it in fact turns out to be a huge problem, let's say in the first year, oh my goodness, everybody's using this provision and they're triggering more than five units. And so they're getting out of the, this is the, re the regulation is in the zoning is that if you've got an existing residential building, you can add out a residential housing units within that building, as long as you stay within the envelope of the building, because we like the form, the shape and the size of our buildings. But if you want to add more units within it, we're not going to limit the number of units you can add. Um, what uh, President uh, Board Member Teague is describing as a way to use state law to get around that. I, how many Alameda resident property owners will actually do that? I guess before, at least from staff's perspective, before recommending that we scrap the planning board's sort of current proposal and, and limit it to four per parcel, which is a, one of the things that's concerning about that is like, so no matter how big the parcel is, it's only four, you know, and you might have a really big parcel, it's still only four. You can have a small parcel, it's four. Um, it, it just feels like, you know, the number of units you should be able to do should be related to the size of your parcel. Um, and I think the so kind of really immediate... the size of your building. So whether you have a big parcel or a small parcel, the size of your existing building determines the size of what you can do. So whether you have a giant yeah, parcel true. or a small parcel, it's your existing building. It's the size of your not building. The parcel. Big building for little building for it doesn't matter. Just 
um, you know, I think I think from staff's perspective, our, our feeling once again, back to the annual review, like if this in fact turns out to be a problem, presumably we'll find out within the next 12 months. Um, and in 12 months, if there's a, there is in fact a problem, um, let's, let's start making adjustments. That's it for me. Thank you. Thank you. Um, board member Cisneros. Yeah, um, thank you. And um, uh, just echoing board member Hom's um, praises. Uh, I, we appreciate all of the compliments, but um, really proud of um, working with such great city staff. And you know, thank you so much for your leadership. Uh, really excited about the housing element that we um, got uh, here that we're viewing today. Um, but two quick questions. Uh, when you're giving your presentation, um, you know, and addressing the concern of overzoning, uh, isn't that you know somewhat required by the state um, to help address the concern of likelihood of development? So, regardless if we wanted to do, do the exact number 53, 53 or whatever it is, um, like we have to quote unquote overzone or what have you um, in, in order to meet this state mandated provision. Is that understanding correct? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, this, this new arena is a major hurdle. Like we, it's tripling the pace of housing development in Alameda. Um, and we don't have, I mean, we have a fair amount of underutilized land that we were able to point to, but really I think the toughest part of this housing element was trying to figure out because we have limited land, because we, the only way to really affirmatively further fair housing and make it and, and, and ensure and affirmatively further fair housing by really opening up opportunities in all neighborhoods the, the the really the the tough the tough challenge is what can we do in the r1 and r6 to open up housing opportunities that will actually produce more housing and the sb9 experience really um has shown us that yeah it's there is not this huge pent up demand among R1 through R6 to, you know, either sell off property to major developers who are going to consolidate or to tear down buildings, to build huge buildings. Like there has been no indication of that. So, you know, we had to, you know, we had to sort of prove up to HCD, you saw all the changes that we made, you know, for HCD. I mean, this 45, they had 90 days to review our, the housing element and the zoning. At about day 45, they called us up and they said, hey, we have a ton of questions, you know. Mm -hmm. And basically over a series of phone calls and discussions, like we had to sort of explain what we were doing. We had to push and, and sort of convince them that everything that we had produced with the planning board and the community would actually produce, you know, the number of units. Um, and of course, HCD is very focused on the issue of affirmatively further fair housing. So over 50% of their questions were also, what are you doing to actually 
remove the sort of history of, of, of exclusionary zoning, of, of zoning decisions in the past that have caused the land use patterns that we now see. When you look at the fair housing appendix and the housing element, which we had to do, when you look at the income distributions in Alameda, when you look at the relationship between past actions that are now gone, redlining, for example, in the 1940s, um, the early zonings of the 1960s and 70s, then measure A, like those decisions, those exclusionary, those decisions which caused to exclude different kinds of people from different areas of the city, you can still see those patterns in today's socioeconomic sort of distribution um, in the actual zoning that we allow today. So um, the short answer is yes. I mean, HCD had a ton of questions for us um, and really pushed us on, you know, are you doing enough? Um, you know, we were ultimately able to convince them with a series of additional sort of adjustments and explanations that, that yes, we, we did believe we were doing enough and they then sent the letters they sent. Got it, and thank you. And then um, my other question, uh, following up on the housing element working groups concern about um, delivering the uh, subsidized below, mar below market rate units. Um, I, I should know this <laughs> from uh, looking at the housing element plan um, and the, the various sites, but I'm thinking of like the Surplus Land Act and how much of our public sites or vacant sites um, are allocated towards affordable housing. Um, I'm curious, yeah, just how much of that uh, is allocated for. So we've put a lot of our housing element opportunity sites are, are federal or, or public land, former federal or currently city owned land. So Alameda Point, all city owned. Alameda Point, um, for those who are sort of new to the conversation, you know, at city owned land at Alameda Point, we now require 25%, not 15%. This is a, this is, you know, to increase because there is such a huge demand for affordable housing, because affordable housing is, is so needed. Um, and because it, because uh, it's city owned land, by, we can require 25% because essentially what we're doing with our development partners, the, the private sector companies that then come in and build the infrastructure at Alameda Point and actually build the housing, um, we're able to give them the land at reduced cost. I mean, that's how we compensate for that extra affordable housing subsidy is the, it comes out of the land cost. So they're getting the land cheaper from us than they would if they went down the street and bought private land from somebody else. Um, but this has come up, I mean, this has come up in every single housing element annual review over the last 10 years. When I mean, we keep coming back to this basic question, which is, yes, we're building housing in Alameda. Yes, we're requiring 15%. Yes, we're even at Alameda Point, we're doing 25%. 
but the afford the crisis the the lack of housing for those who are who are low income is still you know we're we're still very short on supply and then with the other thing that has come up a lot over the last five years um, is the sort of the missing middle. It's not just in Alameda, but in a lot of cities. So we get our 15% for very low and low. Um, but what about that segment of the, of, the, of the community that's looking for those purchase options? Those middle income families don't qualify for the deed restricted units, but can't afford the market rate units. And part of the problem is because if you rely too much on your inclusionary housing ordinance, what that's doing in each project, it's you're subsidizing a percentage of the project with the market rate portion of the project. So the public's not putting any money into it. It's all coming out of the project itself. So the market rate is more expensive to support the deed restrictive and you're creating more of a gap between the two. Um, you know, we, we this has come up again and again at the annual reports, it comes up at the council a lot. Like to really, I mean, it's, you can't solve the housing, the affordable housing crisis with just a housing element. And you can't do it with zoning alone. You gotta do it with money. Sure. Um, right now, you know, the city of Alameda, the typical taxpayer is not, you know, we're not, we're not helping to pay for affordable housing. Financially, we're relying on developers to do it through the inclusionary process. Um, we're relying on state funding sources and they're few and far between. I think our housing authority and our affordable housing developers at Alameda Point and around the city are doing a fantastic job. But, you know, when we talk to the housing authority, like, hey, here's a chunk of land at North Housing or on Eagle, why don't you do more units? Like, let's do more units. And their, their reaction is, every additional affordable housing unit that, that we try to put on this piece of property, just represents an additional funding gap we need to fill. Like it's, you know, we can only get, find so much money to build this housing. Like if we could find more money, sure, we could do more units, but just by giving us more units, that doesn't create more affordable housing units. We need to find the money to actually subsidize those units. Yeah. It's a tough uh, problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would, yeah, I just wasn't a hundred percent. I um, obviously a lot of it is an Alameda point. I just wasn't sure what other um, qualified or potential sites. There yeah, were. we all the city sites, all the city-owned sites that are available for housing are in the housing element. There are large portions of Alameda Point that are um, zoned for employment. Um, we are not proposing changing that at Alameda Point for two reasons. One is because of affirmative furthering fair housing and the need to distribute your arena in both low opportunity areas and high opportunity areas, 24% of the arena at Alameda Point we felt was pretty much sort of the, as we, a huge amount of our arena are in low and opportunity areas, West Alameda, Alameda Point. So um, we, we, there really wasn't more we could do at Alameda Point in terms of public land for the arena. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and we, from staff's perspective, we, we do think the city's plan for a mixed use development at Alameda Point, trying to replace the jobs at Alameda Point that were lost when the Navy left. Um, you know, it, it, it is, we think, 
important that we that we try to you know bring those jobs back and not not sacrifice that employment land too quickly. Um, it seems we don't need to at this point. Mm -hmm. If if over each year when you start looking at your annual reports, if we are lagging far behind on our arena each year, I think that question is going to come back. Like, how do we get more housing built? Well, one area where we have a huge opportunity for the most of the city, we don't own the land. So how do we encourage developers? How do we encourage landowners to actually develop housing? Um, our options are fairly limited. On our own land, we have more, more opportunity. You know, we could we could say, okay, hey, this whole area of Alameda Point that we had just planned for employment, never mind. We're going to rezone it for housing. We could do that in the future. Yeah. It doesn't feel necessary right now, um, but it's something that in the future we might have to discuss. That's helpful. Yeah, and and to your point in terms of responding to the need, it, you know, money it's a big um response or needed response for that and um what we have already in the housing elements recommendations to streamline over the counter approvals mm -hmm. for affordable housing so we're doing that so um i appreciate the the suggestion for a local housing bond so that brings us you know that much more closer so yeah thank you for your response mm -hmm. um thank you director thomas and also um all the fellow board members who asked the questions and I want to thank everyone who contributed to the housing element, as, especially to the public as well, who um, continue to provide support and challenges us to take a closer look and evaluate our own work. Um, so this wouldn't happen without everyone's input. With that said, um, I do have two questions. One, I would like to, I want to build down um, board member Ariza's question regarding site assemblage. Um, so um, refresh my memory and every building that are slated for that want to apply for a demolition permit based on the vintage of the building would need to get reviewed by historic board, correct? Yeah, we're not changing anything in the um, historic ordinance. So that means that it does provide another layer of um, protection to our historic housing stock. Yes, we haven't, we right. haven't. Okay, thank you. And then um, second question I have, and this is in kind of as a reaction to the feedback that I'm seeing on um, ACT and AAPS comments regarding um, their objection to our um, housing element program number four, which is upzoning our R districts. Have we reached out to HCD and asked them point blank if we remove program number four, will our housing elements still comply? Um, yes, we have. That's been an issue of a, a large amount of discussion with HCD. That okay. program is particularly Essential. important to HCD um, okay. for the benefit of the public. In 2020 or in 2021, they wrote us a letter saying, "Okay, these prohibitions on." Multifamily housing and your prohibition on 21 units the acre is fundamentally contrary to fair housing law. Um, AAPS, oh, no, I was not, 
Uh, yeah. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. I was not talking about um, Article 26. I was talking about the upzoning of R1 to R6. Well, that is, I mean, that's the fundamental upzoning that we're doing is removing the multifamily prohibition and getting rid of the, right now, R1 through R6 all have the exact same density, 21 units to the acre. Um, so it, it really, at, at the fundamentally, what are we changing the R1 and R6 through R6? We're, we're removing the, the limitations placed by Article 26. There were some other little things we fiddled with a little, some height limits mm -hmm. here and there, but basically heights, setbacks, lot coverages are relatively stable. Um, in a few little instances, we made some adjustments, but so if, the, the real change is the multifamily prohibition. Right, I just wanna make sure we address the public's concerns. So Absolutely. If, so if we remove that program, our housing element will not comply with state law, right? That's right. I mean, just to be clear how this works though, I mean, if the council, let's say the council at the last minute says, you know what, never mind, we're not going to do this. We're going to remove program four. Mm -hmm. um, they can do that. We then send the housing element to HCD and we see what they say. If they say, nope, we're not certifying this anymore, which is what we believe they will say based on our two years of conversations with HCD, um, then the council will have to decide what to do. You will now be out of compliance with state law, which is what that scary slide was all about. Um, you can do a couple things at that point. You can then go, oh, never mind. We're going to put it back the way it was. Submit it to HCD. Wait, they will then have six, um, you know, 60 days to review it. They, you know, hopefully they send you a letter at that point saying, okay, you're good now that you put it back. If you don't want to do that, you can basically go down the road that some Southern California cities, you know, who are now on their fifth review, we just going back and forth and back and forth. Um, that's just not something that staff is going to recommend to the council. Um, okay, thank you. Um, thank you for that clarification. With that said, I would like to open for public comments. If you would like to speak, please um, raise your hand and um, staff will call you. Okay. okay, our first public speaker is Shelby Washington. We'll make sure we have the timer. Um, Shelby, hang on a second. Can we make sure, sure we have the timer on so that the speaker knows how much time they have? Thank you. Please proceed. Okay, thank you. Um, thanks for taking the time to have this meeting. Um, you may have already addressed this. I did join a little bit late, but I wanted to understand as you think about adding the I don't know how many units to the city of Alameda. Do you anticipate with that will also come additional schools, additional um, other services, police, fire, more transportation? Just want to better understand um, how we'll deal with that increase in population. Did you want me to respond to that question, President Ruiz, or do you want to wait? Yes, until I can and respond you know at the end. Let's wait until the end because typically okay. this is for public comments. Yep. So, but we will allow you, you know, we'll open for conversation. Next, next speaker. Okay, okay we have uh, Paul Foreman. I, uh, 
I must correct uh, Mr. Thomas's statement this evening. Uh, ACT has never stated any concern about building dwellings in excess of our arena. Our primary concern is the blanket upzoning of 16,000 parcels to allow owners to demolish existing structures or existing rental units in order to make room for more multifamily housing, causing the overcrowding, gentrification, and displacement of existing tenants. The overcrowding and gentrification may or may not occur, depending on how many owners take advantage of the upzoning, but the displacement will occur even if only a few projects develop from this upzoning, which is why we hope that you read our letter and recommend that the housing element be amended to assure these tenants replacement housing. With regard to fair housing, every city in California had exclusionary zoning. Many still do at density levels much lower than ours. Yet the first 14 six cycle housing elements approved by HCD in Southern California did not upzone all of their zoning districts. Many had much lower density zones than ours. Thus, there is no state law mandating this. It is instead a policy decision to be made by you and city council. Lastly, and this is not in my letter, the planning department in all its reports to you on the subject the, uh, on, on this subject that the environmental review of the housing element and the zoning ordinance amendments is not required because the GP 2040 EIR projected a population increase of 12,000 dwelling units. So the environmental issues have been addressed. The GP EIR states that supplemental environmental analysis may be required on an individual project level. However, the housing element provides that all the residential upzonings will be by right. By definition, by right removes council's discretion on project approval or anything other than design review, and thus is exempt from CEQA and HAB approval. The housing element law does not require by right zoning unless the site that has been on a prior housing element inventory is being included in the current inventory. None of the new upzonings were in prior inventories. So this universal by right zoning amendment is a city policy matter, not a state law mandate. I would ask that one of you at this meeting ask Mr. Thomas, or he can answer it himself, if my conclusions are correct. And if so, what is his justification for proposing this policy and thus avoiding CEQA and possibly have a review. Thank you. <coughs> okay, next we have uh, Christopher Buckley. Christopher Buckley with the Alameda Architectural Preservation Society. First, would like to thank Director Thomas for his summary of AAPS's concerns, which is generally accurate, but we question the strategy to rely on the housing element annual review to reverse some of the previous upzonings if we're producing more units than we really need, and then downzone and then and then you know downzoning them after that. Uh, the it's although it's not in, as Director Thomas said, it's not impossible to downzone. It is more difficult to downzone than to upzone. 
Also, the impacts of the upzonings will probably not be apparent for a number of years. The SB9 analogy we don't think is a good indicator of what could happen 10 years from now or 12 years from now. It could then become a steamroller. The upzoning should therefore be phased as needed rather than offered all at once. So we reiterate our ongoing concerns that most of the various forms of upzonings proposed in the housing element within all of the residential districts and in the historic commercial districts appear unnecessary to meet Rena and state fair housing requirements and threaten historic properties. We have not been able to find anything in state law or HCD guidelines that demand such a sweeping and indiscriminate upzonings everywhere. So, and we're also not recommending deleting program four, but we are recommending taking out the, the uh, transit overlay and the residential districts upzoning. You know, keep the units within existing buildings in there. That's the only thing now that's meeting the arena. Uh, and it's only generating 160 units over eight years. Uh, and that also will help address fair housing requirements. Um, and if you can't delete the transit overlay, entirely up zones, at least phase them. Don't go whole hog, which is what's happening here. We think they're really overdoing it and doing more than what's needed. The a specific concern we have about the transit overlay is that it's not mapped anywhere. It just depends on where the bus route is. So basically AC transit has the power to determine the zoning over vast portions of the city. That just seems crazy. Uh, can I have the uh, screen share, please? There were some uh, specific proposals we had uh, Prevent, we presented over the last couple of meetings to mitigate some of these proposals if you're going ahead with them. So for example, heights, particularly in the transit corridors, 40 foot height limits, you know, consider a provision where if you've got a building, you can have a, building, a 30 foot height limit just for building walls, but you can go higher, maybe to 45 feet if the rest is in a roof envelope. And you see that in a lot of the older buildings in Alameda. And this proposal would just be for residential neighborhoods. So this way you're achieving some com contextual compatibility of any new construction that's within the transit corridors and any other areas where the height limits exceed what is now prevailing. There's other proposals in our letters, but I've run out of time. So please read the letters. Thank you. Thank you. Do we have any more public comments? Seeing none. Um, we're gonna close the public comment section and we normally do not um, offer response, but given this is a working session, I would like to offer um, Director Thomas an opportunity to address some of the questions that was raised. Well, thank you, President Ruiz. I'll try to do this um, briefly and succinctly. Um, the first speaker, uh, every development project in Alameda has to pay development impact fees. Uh, those fees are, uh, are um, calibrated to the impact on police services, fire services, transportation services. So essentially, and school, school impact fees. So um, when, when a new housing project comes in, they pay fees to the Alameda Unified School District. They pay fees to the city of Alameda for all of these public services, which are then used to fund additional transportation, additional schools, um, additional police services, additional fire services. Um, so, um, but that doesn't mean that it that's, you know, solves the problem. Obviously the city will continue as we have for the past years, continue to work on improving our transportation system. 
Um, we've made some major improvements over the last few years and we will continue to make improvements and we must as a community continue to improve our transportation system um, to accommodate a growing population. Um, this is true of the entire Bay Area. Obviously we're gonna continue working with the school district to improve the school district. Um, a, the school district owns several acres of land out at Alameda Point for a future school site. Um, so, but, which is where a lot of our new population will be located. So, um, in response to the first speaker. Um, in response to ACT and, and AAPS, um, you know, the, the both organizations have really, at least from our perspective, really zoomed into the question of the R districts, um, which are, you know, an important part of Alameda, of course, um, an important part of the housing element. The upzoning of the R districts fundamentally it's the removal of the measure a limitations it's the removal of the multifamily prohibition in every single residential district which is what we've had for the last 40 years in alameda the multifamily housing is a more affordable housing type than single family housing so this is why the state of california wrote to us a year ago and said a charter amendment that prohibits multifamily housing is, and I quote, fundamentally contrary to fair housing law. The same goes for the 21 units per acre density limitation. The idea, which, which is what our zoning code has said for the last 40 years, it doesn't matter what zoning district you're in, a residential, you cannot build over 21 units the acre. That means every property owner, every, every, every household needs to support the cost of 2,000 square feet of land. If you can't afford 2,000 square feet of land, you're not welcome in Alameda. Go find somewhere else to live. That is fundamentally contrary to fair housing. So the what AAPS describes as excessive upzoning of the neighborhoods from staff's perspective it's not excessive upzoning we're removing regulations which are fundamentally contrary to fair housing law as stated by the state of california which is authorized by state law to determine whether we are affirmatively fair, furthering fair housing um, and what we've created what the planning board has created is a a set of amendments that says in the R2, your maximum residential density will be 21 units the acre. In the R3, 30 units the acre. In the R4, 40 units the acre. In the R5, 50 units the acre. And in the R6, 60 units the acre. That is a very standard zoning set of zoning regulations. It is, reflects most cities in California. So when somebody says, oh, the other cities didn't need to upzone all their neighborhoods and all their residential districts. Yeah, because they already had that zoning district. They, those cities didn't prohibit multifamily housing and all their residential multifamily zoning districts. And they didn't prohibit residential densities over 21 units the acre. So yeah, they didn't need to change their zoning standards. Um, you know, I think when it really comes right down to it, it comes down to the question that President Ruiz said the other day, like, if we want to go back to HCD and say, yeah, we heard you, it's fundamentally contrary to fair housing, but would you mind if we just kept a, a little bit of it? 
we just want to exclude in at least a little bit. Would they certify us? You know, based on all of staff's con um, conversation with HCD, based on their letter, which said program four is critical to your certification. Adopting the zoning that goes along with it is critical to your to your certification. Um, yeah, I mean, we think their the reaction from HCD will be quite negative if um, the city council follows the recommendation of ACT and AAPS on that issue. You know, uh, lastly, on, on um, AAPS's suggestion, this like, okay, if we're going to raise it to 40 feet in residential districts for the transit corridor, but let's, let's set this sort of create some form-based guidance to that is kind of how I think about it. It's really, it, you can go to 40, but the top 10 has to be kind of within a roof line. Um, you know, that's, I, you know, if we made that change, do I think HCD would be like, okay, you're not certified anymore. No, I think they would say, yeah, no, that's, you know, that's okay. Um, you're upzoning these areas for say the transit corridors to say they can do it up to 40 feet. But now you want to add a form-based standard that says, hey, the top 10 feet has to be sort of within a, within a roof form. Um, I, I, I think that's the kind of fine tuning and adjustment that HCD would, would, would not have terrible heartburn over. Now, of course, so after a year or so, we have to see how we're doing. Are we actually generating the housing? Um, and you might have to, you know, open it back up again if we're not, but it's certainly something we could consider or the planning board could consider in a recommendation to council. Thank you, Director Thomas. Um, now I would like to open for four comments. If you would like to speak, please raise your hand. Um, Board Member T. I'd like to thank everyone for speaking on this. Uh, Andrew, is it better for me to tell you page number or the PDF page number? Um, uh, it, I can go either one. Just tell me which one you're going off of. And okay, then I'm going to I'm going to use the uh, assuming that the appendixes have some unique page number. I'll use the page number on the page. And you're talking about housing elements okay, or zoning so amendments? Which one? The housing element. Okay. I did not review the zoning because I didn't find it uh, on the pages I looked at. So yep. uh, on page seven, the last paragraph, last sentence, uh, I think it would be more clear to say all comments and direction received were carefully considered, et cetera, et cetera. Um, on page 10, and it's also repeated further on the TCAC slash ACD opportunity map. Uh, the problem I have with it is it doesn't show us the geographic of the island underneath. And so it looks like there's a smear of a whole bunch of other things. It'd be really good if we could make the island clear. Uh, there's another diagram which actually does that. And so that that would really help uh, these two, the two places where it's shown. You're talking about the graphic, the quality of that graphic. The, the graphic, yeah, yes. the opportunity map. Because I look at it and I go, okay, I don't know where the island ends. Yep, yep, yep. Um, on page 13 on H10, I would drop the fifth bullet because it's not uh, advancing the, the point of this section, which is provide an ample supply of housing. That is the goal, you know, doing 
digging into the history and all of this, I, I'm not sure how that provides housing. It, it's a historical thing, very useful, but not in this particular section. This is page 13. And this is one of the, the page 13, the fifth bullet of H10. Oh, okay. Gotcha. It's the prepare a written history. And it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah, but that doesn't provide housing. Yep. Um, last time I brought up that I am really not in favor of transit oriented housing as defined in this. I did have support from other board members and that I really want to specify exactly where, not a formula for determining it. And so when it comes back, I will be making that motion. On so essentially page, a map, uh, making sure there's a map to go with the transit overlay. So not well, necessarily. Basically, yeah, like Santa Clara from Park to Webster, except that's not true. But Lincoln, I would include Lincoln. I would include Encinel. I would include Otis which are our basically original four lane roads um, because these are roads that are transit enabled. And I would say all of these areas, and then as we need to, we add more in the future. I, I don't want this arbitrary quarter mile. I, I wanna really specify what it is. I don't wanna get rid of it. I just wanna define what it is. If it's an area where we know transit will be coming or it's a priority for transit or in the future, it is, should it be shown it in is the map really or not? good for transit. I, 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 whether it's a list of streets where it's street from A to B or a map where there's highlighted streets, I don't care. But that's, I, I'm, I feel really strongly about that. Can I just, uh, I just need to, I just want to ask one more question on that particular yeah. point. If it's an area where we know we want transit in the future, where we're working with AC Transit to increase services, but it doesn't exist today, I'm fine with adding proposal. It would it be included or would it not be included? It would only be included. You'd basically go back and would, amend the map at some future date when it happens. It it depends on the road and where we are. So like Lincoln, Encinal, Otis. Mm -hmm. Island Drive, you know, the roads that are really four lane kind of roads, they lend themselves to future transit development. Ralph Apposato, yep, you know. Yep. Okay. So just the, map it. I, and I'm, yes. And it's yep. probably going to be similar, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more, because I'm adding in roads that don't have buses today. Okay. Uh, on page 20, talking about accessory dwelling units. Um, we really need to work on expanding the development constraints on ADUs, like height, setbacks, those kinds of things. Um, people want to build them. If the state law allows us to, we should be more lenient than we are today. On page 22, the inclusionary housing ordinance, I am very much against the proposal of modifying it from where we are, I really, we have to change the numbers so that we end up with 16% or 17% instead of 15, as opposed to them just adding one house and suddenly getting the density bonus. Everybody's been getting the density bonus because all they have to do is wink and then they go over that line because of 
how we have it divided today. We should readjust it such that they do that extra 1% to give one more percentage of units. And yes, it doesn't address the fact that we are not getting as many low income, but we're getting more units. Thank you for fixing the, the item on 928 about the discrimination. Um, on page 30, we're talking about the substantial rehabilitation program. We need to explicitly call out that they should support the development of ADUs and being able to deed restrict those for 15 years or, you know, that should be there. They don't do it today. They're not interested. They won't talk to you. Uh, so, you know, we really should be much, much stronger on that. Uh, on A2, um, the last sentence, uh, that is not how I read the letter. They said that measure, Article 26 should be voided. They did not say it is preempted. So I'm just going to leave it right there. We talk about the removal of minimum off-street parking in a couple different places, but we did more than that. We got rid of the minimum and established a maximum. And so, you know, getting rid of the minimum, but we also established a maximum. I think we should say that. On page 50, uh, B6, we talk about the amount of money that we have collected for affordable housing. It would be great to have somewhere that says, what did we do with that money? You know, it's about 10, $11 million. It'd be nice to know what happened to that money. Maybe I should know, but I don't. Uh, on B9, um, we did this whole history of the whole rent stuff, and then we stopped. You know, we, we did the, the change. We contracted to the housing authority. They were running it, and now we're bringing it back in-house. You know, that part of the story history it should be here, but isn't. Uh, B16 is the other place for the minimum off street. Uh, starting on C25, we just completely forgot that we're talking about people experiencing homeless and we're just going to say they're homeless and worry about the homeless. So uh, on D43, it's a great chart. But the, the source, kind of, I read it, this is the historical redlining. And when I read the source, I'm kind of like, what is it today? What I've got, I really lost the, the time context for this redlining. So if we could have like historical redlining, the 1925 to 40 or whatever it was that's in the text, so that it's, when someone looks at it, they, they get this is the badness that happened in the 30s. On page D13, uh, displacement risk due to wrongful eviction. Uh, I don't believe we have a shortage of tenant protections. Uh, the lack of landlord education and, and tenant education, that we're missing both, but that's not a shortage of tenant protections. It's a lack of education. Because I see things posted by tenants, I think things posted by landlords that are just wrong, you know, and it's the education that they need. And it's not that we don't have the protections, we do. People just don't know about them. 
Mm -hmm. uh, E2 has the other diagram that I was talking about updating with the geographic. Yep. Uh, construction costs. You know, I read through this and I was like $153 per square foot. There were many, many people who would love to pay $153 a square foot. Uh, I just, that's totally unbelievable. You know, I, okay, so there's a manual that said it, but I, nobody can do that. So I, I don't, what page I, you I just kind of lost it right there. What page? Uh, F2. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, it, and construction costs are going up so fast that. Uh, it, it's, yeah. uh, and, and the construction costs, I wasn't sure we are doing things that increase the cost of construction, meaning the state, the city, the county, the city. You know, does that fall under government uh, in barriers or under construction costs? So I agree with the uh, universal design, but it increases the cost. And we should just say, yes, it does. And that's for the betterment of the world to do mm -hmm. that. Uh, but it does increase the cost. Net zero increases the cost. You know, there are so many things that increase the cost, but we do it for a reason, not always good, but they are, there are quite a few things that we have added as a government that increase the cost. Mm -hmm. And if there's anything that we can do to try to deal with that, that would be fantastic. Uh, F12 is also where the minimum maximum parking. Um, on page F17, when we were talking about the universal design, um, it would be nice if we actually knew what percentage of projects we've had to give the waiver for, because I think it's high. Uh, I think it's not just some, but high, like most, um, which not great. It would be nice to know what the real number is. Yeah, pretty much every townhome project. Yeah, and well, I mean, that's what it comes down to. If you're doing townhomes, you can't meet our was, ordinance. But is Boatworks the one across from Oak and? Yes. Yeah, is that was that townhomes? Is that why yep. they? Okay. Uh, Oak guys have a waiver because of townhomes. Um, townhomes at Alameda Arena have a waiver. Got it. Site A townhomes didn't meet the standard. West Midway is not going to meet the standard. It's if you're doing townhomes, getting 100% visitability is pretty much impossible. Got it. Okay. And then on F19, we talk about the definition of family. I, I'm not quite sure why it suddenly appeared there. Um, it was like, okay, family, here's what family is. Uh, so I, I, it just kind of was a non sequitur. And I'm not sure if that's the definition we discussed when we did the zoning. So it was kind of weird for it to be there. Okay, we'll take a look. I, I do like the definition because it's not based on blood. Uh, it is contrary to what the census does and what the state says. Uh, so that, I don't know if that's going to cause us a problem or not. Uh, sorry, I didn't find the zoning. Otherwise, potentially I would have had comments on that. I will deal with that next time. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Board Member T. Any other board comments? 
Board Member Hong. Thank, thank you. Um, thank you, uh, staff, once again, for the really good work. And i uh, got to say thank you. I'm impressed, uh, Commissioner Keith, the level of detail I feel I feel inadequate based on the comments I'm going to offer. Uh, um, just a couple of thoughts. A lot of this is based on comments that that I heard tonight. Um, I, I I continue to be concerned with us being able to meet our affordable housing requirements. You know, the, for the very low and low, and for for all the reasons that that uh, plan director explained, I totally understand that. So I do like that there's going to be a proposal about concerning a housing bond. I guess when I see consider a housing bond, typical HCD will be when, you know, they want timelines. So part of me says, number one, that, you know, if we're going to really achieve our arena numbers, this housing bond should be in place as soon as possible. Then the other part of me says, how realistic will this housing bond get passed? Are we putting our eggs in one basket, you know? It, you know, so part of me says, are there other things we can consider that might ease the financial burden and help produce the affordable housing? For example, are there additional waivers? You know, are there additional zoning concessions? I know the city has done a lot, so I'm not suggesting that there's nothing in place, but are there some additional measures that we can be uh, doing to further incentivize or help close the financial gap a little bit. I'm not, I'm sure we can't close it completely until you have a massive amount of influx of, of uh, dollars, but is there something beyond, you know, floating a housing bond? Because part of me says, if that doesn't pass, then where does that leave you, you know? Um, so that's kind of my, my comment there, whether there's additional things that we haven't already included in the housing element that could potentially help that are at the same kind of like aggressive level that that, we, that I think all cities need to achieve their affordable housing numbers. Um, second comment, there was concern raised by, um, by ACT uh, about loss of replacement housing, gentrification, all of that. Um, I'm not gonna comment on that specifically. However, uh, part of me, ask is there's probably there's probably provisions in either state law or in the Alameda housing element that that especially for low-income housing if you're proposing housing that takes advantage of certain state laws you know there's a requirement for replacement housing that helps mitigate that fear or that concern and to the degree that the housing element re reiterates that or uh, reinforces that would be beneficial because obviously uh, none of us would like the unintended consequences of, you know, you know, you know, moving, you know, low income or moderate income housing units or tenants from Alameda. That goes opposite of what what the effect is. So, to the degree that we can offset that or assure that doesn't happen, I know there are <clears throat> provisions in place already. Um, I think on the on the flip side, there's more chances of introducing affordable housing. Than displacing them, you know. Of course, there's always that net difference, but I, I think the opportunity is really more on the other side of creating opportunities for more affordable housing. Um, let's see. Then other comments. Um, a couple of comments from uh, AA 
P.S. that I do agree with. I, I do agree with Commissioner Teague about mapping it, mapping the transit overlay district. I think there should it should be clearly defined and have a, a map that you know shows up on the Sony map. Um, I do agree. You know, where, where I kind of differ a bit from Commissioner Teague, and I understand where he's coming from because trying to be aggressive about promoting transit is really good. So to me, definitely map, you know, include in the transit uh, zones where there's an existing line line on central. To me, unless there's really active discussion with AC, AC Transit that we think that say within the, you know, maybe housing element horizon, that there might be a, another transit line, express line or transit line proposal on say Encinal, which would make a lot of sense or, or on Central. I'm a little hesitant about moving forward, designating those corridors right now, you know. Um, but if it's kind of prevalent, I mean, the active discussion uh, along a particular street, uh, even though that street doesn't currently have adequate transit to meet the requirement, then that makes a lot of sense that you plan ahead. So to me, it kind of depends on what level of discussion and how realistic is that transit line that will be established in the housing element uh, period. So that's comment there. Um, I do agree on the adjusting the height uh, to take in consideration the slope roofs. How, however, part of me says that is a to me, that has to do with the character of a neighborhood. And when I look at like R1 or R2 districts where you, you know, have, you know, predominantly, you know, homes that's fairly steep roofs, where the Victorian or, you know, French or Tudor style, that makes sense to me in the lower density district. I'm not sure I would introduce this slope roof concept in the higher, you know, zoning districts like, you know, R4 or 5 or 6 where, if the predominance is multifamily homes, you know, there's slope roofs may not necessarily fit, but it makes sense for neighborhood character maybe to, mm -hmm. to refine the height limit in those neighborhoods where the predominant architectural character are these significant slope roofs. So, so uh, I, I do agree with that. Um, and I, you know, without getting into the details, I, I do echo what Commissioner Teague is saying regarding the inclusionary housing ordinance. I know there seems to be uh, staff level resistance to looking at the inclusionary housing ordinance, but you know, to me, you know, I don't know whether I don't know enough about the ordinance whether there's a difference between for sale housing or rental housing. But you know, to me, maybe stricter inclusionary housing requirements or lower income level for the rental units. Maybe that's already in place in the city. I just don't know. So those are kind of my general comments. Um, and I look forward to kind of diving into a little more detail when we actually get, get the list of revisions. I'd like to see the list of revisions that, um, that was worked out with HCD to understand what, what staff had to respond to to get the HCD certification. But given that the city has gone so far and have received HCD certification, I'm kind of hesitant with, about stepping backwards and say, oh, we don't want to do the overlay district for the R1 through R6. I tend to agree with you that that would be a non-starter HCD because it meets such a significant uh, furthering fair housing requirement that is 
so dominant in all HCDs uh, reviews. So anyway, those are my comments. Thanks. Thank you, board member Hom. Board member Cisneros. Yeah, um, a huge thanks again, board member Teague. Um, putting me to shame here. <laughs> we just uh, really appreciate your uh, thorough review and preparedness. Um, and yeah, just uh, ref responding to a couple of comments um, already brought up. Um, I, I totally agree that um, we're in a really good place and we've gotten um, far with a excellent housing element. Uh, again, thanks to this, um, my great colleagues and our great staff. So of concern of like regressing in any way. Um, so I, I just wanted to voice that as we take into some of these considerations from ACT, et cetera. Um, uh, and I will say, I do think um, the map could be really helpful for us to all just look at and respond to that. So it'd be great to have that um, for the next meeting. And um, as it relates to the inclusionary zoning, um, I always um, am concerned of getting too aggressive or too high with that and that having unintended consequences. But if it's, you know, 1% or, um, you know, just a couple of percent, um, you know, hopefully uh, that will help us towards meeting our affordable housing arena goals. And um, recently, um, AB 2011, a state legislation that's talking about um, rezoning a lot of commercial sites or all, all commercial sites <laughs> for housing. Um, in California, they have language in there um, that I thought maybe we could um, consider um, if we were to revisit our inclusionary zoning where um, they provide an option for developers to provide 8% of units for low income and 5% for extremely low income because there was another bill that did pass AB 2094 that would start tracking ELI housing units for the APR. Mm -hmm. uh, so to that, if, if we're going to look at that, um, maybe we work towards um, that income category. And then um, as it relates to the housing bond, um, I believe in 2024, there's a lot of um, discussion about a potential regional housing bond, about um, lowering the voter threshold to a simple majority. Um, to make it that much more easier to allow um, housing bonds uh, to pass. And so I think that is just something to consider um, as we, if HCD is act, uh, asking for like timeline, um, how, how do we want to respond, respond to that 2024 milestone? Um, those are all my comments. Thank you, board member Cisneros. Um, I only have a few comments and mainly it's about the process. Again, thank you staff and everyone for your hard work on this um, housing element. Um, first thing is uh, thank you, um, Andrew, for inc incorporating um, ways to fund infrastructure improvements. So that is not an additional burden on the developers and ultimately passing on to the cost uh, to the buyers or the renters. My question is, um, is Alameda Point the only area that um, could potentially benefit from the infrastructure um, cost reduction that's listed under H5? 
Um, well, there's... Um, Are there other sites that can potentially benefit from this and because we, we are seeing that all the new development, developments have special assessment um, fees that's added onto their partial tax. Right, right. No, I think it, uh, you're correct. I mean, we, okay. all of the, all the major sites along the Northern waterfront have had to essentially build all new infrastructure, okay. which has then resulted in CFD assessments to help finance that, which then gets translated into additional costs for the property owners. Um, so that's certainly something that, you know, the in, finding ways to help finance infrastructure is mm -hmm. definitely not just an Alameda Point issue. So if there's any way we can expand the program mm -hmm. when, you, when you start to work on that to go beyond Alameda Point, that um, I will welcome that. Um, and I would recommend that um, we submit a formal response to all the public comment letters so that um, we can address their concerns, especially um, AAPS, ACT, and also HEWGs. Mm -hmm. Submit that um, gave us a really thought thoughtful um, comments. And uh, I, looking at the public comments, I appreciate the um, one of the graphs that's in um, housing element working groups in their figure one where they graphically show how the market rate housing and the improvement rate housing are distributed within our, um, our housing element. And if there's a ways to incorporate that diagram, uh, I think that would be helpful. And it would also serve as a reminder to us that currently um, the West End is bearing the majority of the affordable housing. And um, just because other jurisdictions have exclusionary, exclusionary zoning has maintained it doesn't mean that we need to follow that. And definitely we're not gonna follow that example. Um, and on that note, I would recommend that uh, in our zoning analysis and zoning amendments, so we should reduce, revisit uh, our NIDA's inclusionary housing policy as well. So that concludes my comments. And um, given that there's no action items, I think we can- I think you have one additional planning board member. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, oh, your new Ariza, uh, Diana? Didn't raise her hand. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Are you, we're all done? Yeah, she did not raise okay. her hand, so okay. I was not going to put her on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Okay. okay. Um, fantastic. So what we'll do is, um, well, I thank you for the comments. Um, I don't know if we will make it back for the next meeting. I mean, there's, there's a, a bunch of things here we need to look at. Um, I think the biggest one that we need to, um, it sounds like there is a, a, at least a, a number of you would feel more comfortable if we restructured the transit overlay as an actual mapped overlay district, not hard to do. Um, I think what we will bring back is a map that will essentially show it as an overlay zone as opposed to what it is now, which is a general provision. It'll keep most of the, of the um, 
of the um, same provisions, but there'll be a map associated with it, I think, in terms of, and what that map will show is where the major transit is now um, and where we expect it to be during the, basically this next eight year cycle. Um, you know, trying to predict where transit will be in 15 years, 20 years is probably just too much of a difficult thing, but we can. Um, and it really is ex about extending transit out to Alameda Point. I mean, and connecting at the ferry terminal of Alameda Point to the rest of the city. So um, we'll keep working on that. I mean, the, the, um, the inclusionary housing ordinance, a very interesting subject matter. Um, something I think, you know, we will add some additional language on that. Um, but it is something we're gonna have to revisit. I think along at the annual reviews, um, if the planning board wants to start diving into those issues about around inclusionary housing and potential changes, um, staff is always ready to jump into that conversation with the planning board. Um, it's not something we're gonna accomplish before we get our housing element certified, but it's certainly something that we could put on the priority list for you know early next year to really dive into that conversation. Um, just to give you a preview, the issues that we will struggle with is you can certainly increase the percentages, but that will automatically trigger density bonuses for every project. So you have to be comfortable with that. If you're comfortable with density bonuses with every project, if you're comfortable with waivers for every project, then, then you're comfortable with raising those percentages. The other approach, of course, is to try to reduce the number of density bonus applications. So to do that, you're basically going to have to say, we no longer want 4% very low housing, because it's so close to the 5%, which was a president or board member Teague was talking about, everybody can just trigger density bonus by adding one percentage point. So are we comfortable saying, you know what, we're not going to require 4% anymore, we're going to bring it down to 2% yeah. less affordable housing in that category. These are just tough, tough decisions to have to be made and they're gonna require exactly. a lot of community discussion. Exactly, that's why I'm asking because I don't think it's uh, something that we can discuss yeah. in the short period. That's why I'm recommending that you bring it up, get back to the, um, the planning board as a, a priority item yep. next year. So okay. we can dive into it deeper. And Fantastic. because it also affects construction costs as well. Right? It would affect the market rate housing costs. So we want to review that. Thank you. Thank you all. We will try to get back as soon as we can. It may not be your next meeting. It may be the first meeting in October. Um, and then we're going to be anxious to move it up to the council. Thank you. Um, Board member T, do you, did you have your hand up or you change your mind? Uh, I just wanted to be clear in terms of the transit I'm really looking at the parcels on those roads, not the quarter mile area. It will be helpful if we have a map of yep. those two to compare. Thank you. So with that said, I'm going to close um, agenda item 2B. Agenda item 7C has been continued to the next meeting. Moving on to agenda item 7D. Public hearing to consider recommending adoption of the 
Equitable Building Decarbonization Plan, CEQA determination. This action is statutory, statutorily exempt from the environmental review under the California Environmental Quality Act, pursuant to CEQA guidelines section 15061 The general rule is CEQA only applies to actions that have the potential to cause significant impact to the environment. Do we have a staff presentation? Yes, we have Danielle Mueller, our Climate Resiliency Manager. Good evening, President Ruiz and members of the Planning Board. I'm Danielle Mueller, a Sustainability and Resilience Manager. Um, I'm going to be presenting on the Equitable Building Decarbonization Plan tonight. Um, as we work together to respond to climate change, improve quality of life, and create a more livable community, staff has developed the Equitable Building Decarbonization Plan to help Alameda improve health, resilience, and sustainability of our community and buildings. The plan recommends a phased approach to lay the groundwork needed by 2030 to de decarbonize our building stock over time. Sorry, the button, okay. Um, so this plan meets the goals of Alameda's Climate Action and Resiliency Plan, as well as our 2019 Climate Emergency Declaration and the General Plan um, to become carbon neutral as soon as possible. Building on the ordinance passed last year by City Council requiring all new buildings to be all electric, the plan is designed to address the 27% of citywide emissions that come from burning natural gas in buildings while ensuring that our most vulnerable residents can also make the switch to efficient modern electric appliances. Tonight, I'll um, first review what building decarbonization is. Then I'll discuss the equity principles and housing nexus that we um, investigated for the plan. We'll go over the elements and phases that make up the framework of the plan, as well as our immediate priorities for implementation. And lastly, I'll go over the outreach process and the comments we received in development of the plan. And at the end, I will be asking for your recommendation that council adopt the plan. So first, what is building decarbonization? Um, building decarbonization is a three-step process that results in buildings that do not emit greenhouse gases in their operation. The first step is to decarbonize the electric grid and AMP began providing 100% clean energy in 2020. This hugely important step serves as a foundation for us to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions from both transportation and buildings through electrification. So step one is complete. Second um, is energy efficiency. And this refers to as reducing as much as we can the energy use in buildings through insulation, air sealing, and switching to LEDs. This reduces our energy bills and increases comfort for occupants. California has been a, a, a excuse me, California as a whole has been hugely successful with energy efficiency. Between 1975 and 2016, um, California reduced its use of fossil fuels per unit of economic output by over 70%. But we all know that Alameda has many older buildings and there's much more to be done here. And then thirdly is electrifying buildings by replacing gas appliances with electric ones for water heating, HVAC, cooking and clothes drying for high efficiency, healthier and safer buildings. This step goes back to relying on Alameda's clean electricity to power our homes and businesses. As part of the plan, we developed equity principles that serve as guardrails and metrics in the decarbonization process to ensure that all Alameda residents benefit from the transition to electric appliances. We have to make sure that these upgrades are done equitably to ensure that our vulnerable communities who are energy and rent burden today 
who live in leaky and drafty homes, who may have poor indoor air quality from old gas burning appliances, who have higher rates of asthma and who live in older buildings with deferred maintenance, seismic vulnerability and health hazards are prioritized. As we prioritize the benefits of building decarbonization for our vulnerable community, we should also be aware that building decarbonization impacts housing. As Alameda is facing a housing crisis, which we've been talking about at length tonight, um, our climate strategies should support affordable housing to keep our community safe, healthy, and resilient. The benefits to our renter community only go as far as their ability to stay in their homes and the community. And policies and programs should be thoughtful about maximizing opportunity and avoiding unintended consequences for renters and small landlords. We believe that the significant financial resources becoming available from the state of California, the Inflation Reduction Act, and already existing from AMP and Bayren will significantly bring down the cost of retrofits while, while producing energy bill savings. And Alameda's existing renter protection uh, laws will also serve to support our guardrails. So our plan looks at actions needed in the immediate, near-term and long-term between now and 2030 to decarbonize our building stock over time. And I wanna be clear that we're not talking about having every building um, decarbonized, electrified by 2030, but we do think 2030 is a very important milestone um, in climate uh, action. And so we are looking at policies and programs that we believe we need to have in place to lay the groundwork for um, that transition, which we, under, we recognize will take longer than 2030. Um, in the plan, there's greater degree of specificity for the immediate term, but later phases have been intentionally a little bit less specific to provide um, flexibility to respond to the rapidly changing conditions in the market and policy landscape that we're seeing today. Um, the element, the plan has four elements, which include education and outreach, um, including marketing campaigns, seminars, handouts, social media, our website, and public stake, stakeholder meetings, um, policies and programs, including supporting voluntary, op, op, voluntary adoption, and developing requirements for adopting certain measures when appropriate and cost-effective. Um, financing and funding to explore new revenue measures to support our low and moderate income households and continue to monitor state and federal funding opportunities. And finally, Alameda Municipal Power, um, who will continue and expand their existing rebates, education and outreach activities, evaluate new program design with equity focus, and develop technical assistance for customers. Um, there is a detailed matrix of proposed actions that can be found in the plan's executive summary, and I didn't reproduce it here today because it's fairly lengthy. Any specific policy or program will include significant community engagement, and we'll return to this board and the city council for review and approval of those individual items resulting from the plan. And AMP will be a hugely important partner in this effort, and we look forward to working closely together with them to achieve our shared goals. Um, the success of this plan relies heavily on community involvement and support. To develop the plan, staff use multiple forms of community engagement to provide education and incorporate community knowledge and feedback. We developed educational materials, including trilingual one-page information sheets. We created a city website providing information, which you can see the link here, um, on energy efficiency and building electrification. And we designed a workshop series with seven workshops um, in partnership with AMP covering electrification 101, 
policy brainstorming for renters, landlords, and single-family homeowners, um, and a review of the draft plan. Uh, the materials were promoted widely on the city's social media and website and uh, the sustainability and resilience newsletter, as well as at the farmers markets. We also conducted a trilingual community survey in English, Spanish, and Chinese to understand what the community felt were important opportunities and barriers in electrification. And the draft plan was released for public review during um, July and the beginning of August. So we heard um, from the public a number of items of support um, and concerns that you can see here, and we've worked to address those. Some of the concerns that we heard reflected in the plan um, and work to address those concerns, including we're, we're going to be working with a, um, regional agencies and other departments to address concerns around cost and renter protection. And as I, I mentioned, we really anticipate more funny, funding funneling down from the state and federal governments for building decarbonization, especially with the recent passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, I really can't stress how much support that is going to provide to us, the local government level and to individual residents um, and building owners to really help make this transition very financially viable um, and address some of the technical concerns and um, and, and job availability concerns, labor, labor concerns. Um, we also know that regional agencies and state agencies are already working on the transition of workforce and training contractors. And we intend to conduct ongoing community outreach, education and research as we continue to develop policies and programs um, to support the community in the transition. So tonight, um, I'm asking for your recommendation that council adopt the equitable building decarbonization plan. Um, this plan is also be con being considered by the public utilities board at its September 19th meeting and with your approval um, by city council in October. Later this fall, staff is also planning to bring an ordinance that readopts our all electric new buildings reach code for the 2023 building code cycle and to recommend a new ordinance focusing on replacing certain gas appliances with electric ones in existing buildings when they're undergoing a remodel or an addition. Um, public engagement for both of those ordinances will be happening later this fall and we'll be bringing the um, proposed draft ordinance back to this planning board uh, for your review. So that's all for tonight. Thank you for your time. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions that you might have. Let me see if I can out of the presentation. Thank you so much for the presentation. Um, again, I'm gonna open up for more questions, then public comments, and then board comments. Board member Teague. Thank you for the presentation uh, and coming forward with this. Uh, on page 34, we talk about the negative impacts of the building decarbonization on housing and rent. Um, where do we try to figure out how to mitigate those? I, I looked through the document and I couldn't find anything other than one line item, which was coordinated with the rent program staff. Uh, where else are we attempting to mitigate the negative impacts? Thank you for, for that question. Um, we are wanting to be very aware and, and uh, of any potential rent impacts on uh, stemming from electrification. 
Um, at this time, as I, as I mentioned, with there are so many significant um, significant rebates and incentives that are available to building owners to decarbonize um, their buildings that and and there are so much energy savings to be had that our feeling is that there is not going to be significant impacts on rent. Of course, there will be some costs associated with these measures and they are not um, not simple measures to to undertake in all cases. Um, and so we're really hoping to, um, you know, track that very carefully and to focus our any efforts we have on any funds that come in that we are able to receive and any funds that we're able to um, to procure stemming from the Inflation Reduction Act on really um, ensuring that those funds go to supporting low and moderate income households and and our small um, small landlords um, in supporting. The, this transition. Um, the other thing I just want to make very clear is that um, we think that building decarbonization is is a very um, is very important at this time. Though the change the the requirements that we are proposing are really related to um, owners who may be already planning to undertake major remodels and upgrades of their buildings. Um, the rest will really be focused on, at this time, voluntary adoption, especially in the near term, and supporting um, supporting owners with, with those voluntary measures um, and pairing that with, um, with as many rebates um, as, as we can make available and as are becoming available, um, especially existing through AMP and especially through the Inflation Reduction Act, um, really significant funds becoming available there. And then We've also, you know, been trying to evaluate, and some of this will have to, to be determined as we start to go through this process, um, but the energy savings that will be coming to, to tenants uh, from, these, from these measures um, on the order of, of about $800 a year per tenant um, to really help offset any potential costs um, coming from, from these upgrades. Okay, so really focused entirely on the tenant and not really the landlords. So a landlord that has a unit, I, there's like 10 units, they all have these tiny little gas wall heaters and they will have to replace all of those as they break and have to be repaired or replaced with an electric version of something. Uh, and really the concern as is written today is to protect the tenant from any increases. So where am I missing the balance here? We, we absolutely want to support the, the, um, the landlords and making those changes and, and also while also protecting the tenants from ensuring that they are not um, facing undue uh, rent increases. So I think there's a balance there. Um, there. And again, I think what we're really focused on is the, um, is the incentives, the financial support that's available through the multitude of incentives um, that are available to, to building owners to undergo these upgrades um, at 
not significant additional cost um, to the, then switching a like for like um, gas appliance replacement. And, and again, where we are um, right now with any proposed um, actual requirements would be that these are only for measures in which the, the landlord is or looking to do a, a remodel or a renovation um, of a unit and not that they that we're asking them to proactively go out and, and make these um, changes. Okay, thank time. you. Thank you, Ms. Miller. Um, Floor Member Hom. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, uh, first of all, I think the plan is very commendable. You know, the goal of the of uh, you know decarbonization is certainly a very worthy goal from the climate change standpoint. So, sir, I don't have any issue with the goal and the and the report or the plan does go through a lot of detail, trying to be sensitive to, to equity issues and impacting tenants and all of that. So that's pretty well documented. My question is very much almost Commissioner Teague almost took the same questions out of my mind. When I was looking through the plan, it quite honestly was a little loose on how those equity concerns are going to be addressed. You know, you talk about a lot of incentives. Um, you know, to me, that is a very worthwhile goal, but I could see some resistance by landlords and tenants who will be concerned about the impact. I, I didn't see elements in the plan that really address it. We recognize the equity concerns. This is what we're proposing to address them. So I found that I was looking in the plan, just like Kipcher Teak was, am I missing a section? And I didn't see, and perhaps is unfair to point that out because it's probably impl further implementation measures that need to be, you know, you know, finer grain uh, discussion. Um, but one thing I didn't see is, you know, obviously like restaurants, for instance, use a lot of gas, you know, so, you know I didn't see a discussion of, um, of um, what the thought was or what, what the level of outreach was to like restaurants or businesses that use a lot of gas for their uh, business. I'm sure you did outreach, but I didn't see see that discussion. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit on the type of outreach you may have done with businesses, working maybe the park and Webster Street merchants groups? We, we have done some um, general outreach to commercial businesses. We have not um, at this time focused our outreach on, on residents and, or sorry, on restaurants. Um, we fully intend when there are um, any types of policy uh, requirements that are geared towards rest restaurants that we would conduct significant outreach um, to, to restaurants about any proposed policies. Um, we just don't have any specific um, policy recommendations that we would be making at, at this time towards restaurants. Um, so, so I think to, to, your, to your larger point about some of the outreach that's to be conducted, we're really trying to lay the, front, the framework here for sort of where do we need to go, what is the goal, and how are we going to get there? And then, you know, as we're developing each of our individual policies, making sure that those are robust and, and really um, addressing all of the necessary equity concerns and addressing and reaching out to the appropriate stakeholders given any particular policy um, recommendation. 
Yeah, yeah. And you know, I, and I appreciate that there'll be more outreach to kind of fine tune uh, what the requirements will be. Perhaps it's premature, but I wanted to get a sense of what, based on the discussion with the community and the concerns that you've outlined pretty well in the plan, I thought, is you're talking about an ordinance that will eventually come before the planning commission and for city council adoption that will try to identify under what premises will a landlord or a business or whoever it might be, a homeowner perhaps will be required to, to electrify versus the number of incentives that you were offering. What, what has been based on the, the, the outreach you've done, you know, what is, what's the thought of what will trigger the mandatory upgrade? And if someone comes in with an electrical permit to replace their wall heater, kind of the example that Commissioner Teague brings up, will that trigger a need to then change to electric wall heater? I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of what that, what the thinking is will be the threshold. Absolutely. Um, we are still in the, we are in the stage right now of um, staff drafting our recommendations. So we haven't begun the stakeholder outreach process yet. And we plan to be doing that later this fall um, to really get uh, feedback. Where we've been focusing and the way that we sort of conceptualized a potential ordinance um, and any requirements for existing buildings upgrades um, is really to try to address some low hanging fruit to try to address um, items where it might be where it's cost effective today, given incentives that are available today um, to make changes, and where it is um, where owners are already maybe doing work in the building. So, particularly if they're doing major remodels, if they're opening up walls, um, that's a particularly good time uh, to make changes. If they're already planning to move a water heater, for example. Um, that's a really good time to, to consider making those, those types of changes. Um, so we've really tried, are trying to sort of um, pick off some low hanging fruit areas, times and, um, and measures that are cost effective and that are fairly um, easy additions to do to already planned work. Um, so something like a water heater that um, breaks and there's an emergency repair and it needs to be replaced tomorrow we would not be looking at something like that to require that it be switched to electric because there's just not the, the time or the, or the pre-planning um, that's in place to do that. Another example maybe of a cost-effective measure might be if you're going to um, replace your air conditioner, there's a very small valve that you can use to, so that your air conditioning unit can also provide heat. So essentially an air conditioner is a heat pump and heat pumps are the technology that so many of our electric efficient appliances are based off of. Um, so providing that opportunity to, for your, uh, your air conditioner to also um, provide heat is a really um, low cost measure that can be done when you're already planning an electric and AC upgrade. Um, at this time, we're not going to be recommending um, any other HVAC replacements because furnaces are just frankly not quite cost effective yet to replace with electric. Of course, we encourage residents who want to go that route to do that. Um, but we think that there's going to be uh, more incentives coming on the market in the near and later term that will make those types of measures more cost effective. And so we wouldn't want to put any requirements in place around something like that um, at this time. Okay. 
Thank you. Those are my questions. Thank you. Um, seeing that there are no further board questions, I'm going to open up to public comments. Okay, our first public speaker is Karen Miller. And before Karen speaks, could we please make sure we have the timer up? Sure, sure, absolutely. And Karen Miller. Um, I'm a small landlord. I have a six unit building that was a converted Victorian. And um, I figured out if I had to, and I know that this is not in the plan right now to go for all electrification for every unit, but I figured out that it was over $100,000 to replace all of the, the stove, the water heaters, the, the heaters, the service. Uh, in order to do that in my building, I'd have to, people couldn't live there. I'd have to have everybody be gone and it would take about a month to get all that done. And it came out to $166,060. What what I see that's not being looked at is so you're talking, Danielle, you talked about uh, if you had a water heater that you needed, if you were going to do a, a remodel of a unit. So all my water heaters are in the laundry room. If I was going to remodel one of my units, I would have to. If that water heaters in the laundry room, I would have to that getting electrical service to that water heater would involve going through the walls of two different units. So those people would be have to leave because I'd be cutting holes in their walls in order to just get the water heater replaced to electric service. You also have the differential. My units, my building cannot take an additional anything electric. I would need to change the service. If, if I change a stove, if I do anything in a unit, even if it's vacant and I need to replace, if I'm going to do a remodel, stove, wall heater. I need to open up the walls, put in new service. You know, the electrical cords need to go, wires need to go through the ceilings, through the walls. I need, my panel is not going to work for that. Need to change the panel. And depending on where I am electrical wise, it, I, I'm probably going to have to change the service to the building. I mean, we're just talking these huge costs and it's not feasible. And you're talking about, you know, uh, money that's going to come from somewhere to do this. I'm a small little landlord, $166,000 for me. There's not enough money that anybody's going to give me. If you take that times how many people own all these buildings, it's not going to happen. I think it's an admirable thing. We need to address climate change. I'm all for that, but I just don't see how this can work. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Next speaker is Ruth Ob. Uh, good evening, um, Madam President and members of the planning board. I'm Ruth Abbey from the Community Action for a Sustainable Alameda. And we were formed in 2008 to support the city in its development of its climate action goals. We're here to support the recommendation of the support of the plan for decarbonization of the housing of the buildings in Alameda. 
And I just wanted to remind the board that in addition to the climate action impacts, there are also very significant health and human safety impacts of converting from natural gas. Uh, natural gas is impactful to children and, and people in terms of asthma and other issues. And then, of course, you know, um, you know about San Bruno and other impacts associated with having natural gas in our community. I, we very much support the transition from natural gas uh, for absolutely the climate reasons and for other reasons as well, and to support residents and um, landlords in converting wherever possible. We're pleased to be a partner with the city in, uh, in implementing the Climate Action and Resiliency Plan and have pursued uh, grants, in including a uh, tech program grant to demonstrate how um, moderate and low income um, households can convert to uh, all electric. So we are hoping to provide that demonstration and to show how Alameda buildings can convert using the benefits of, you know, rebates and other incentives to convert our, our households to natural gas. We are very enthusiastic about reaching out to uh, Downtown Business Association, um, Webster's, uh, West Alameda Business Association, others, and engaging them in the dialogue about converting our restaurants and other uh, commercial buildings from natural gas to all electric. And we are so supportive of the fact that here we are in Alameda, where we have 100% non-carbon power, we really can be a leader across the state in demonstrating how it can be done. We just need to work with the community, work with the residents, the, res the, the renters, the businesses, and the building owners to uh, embrace the vision of a community that is not um, reliant on natural gas and can embrace the 100% uh, carbon-free power. So uh, thank you for the opportunity to present um, to you this evening, and we're really looking forward to being a partner with the community going forward. Thank you. Um, next speaker. Okay. okay, we have William Smith. Planning board members and uh, Ms. Mueller. Uh, I'm a resident of Alameda and I've been and active involved with the renters and uh, also with CASA in discussing how to admit, uh, how to mitigate some of the cost increases. And I wanted to address my comments to that. Uh, renters are used to being shafted, is the best way to put it. They're extraordinarily skeptical that this can be done uh, without passing costs onto them. And uh, the surveys that you did that support this document as well demonstrate that the renters are a hard to reach community. Uh, it was dominated by single family homeowners, most of your responses and the renters were, 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 were down. And a good example is the capital improvement program. You know, I noticed you were talking about, you only apply this to people that do the, use capital improvements. Well, that almost always results in increases to the uh, uh, cost of the rent for people because the increase, the building is, is improved. Uh, and then they, and often the renter, the uh, landlords can then take that building and re-rent it again uh, at a higher at a higher higher cost, and so and the the renters that I work with were extraordinarily skeptical that there's anything that can be done that this, for the city to guarantee that the cost would that their costs would not increase, and their big concern was 
what happens if the energy cost savings do not pan out? And then that, that they're relying on they're relying on the energy cost savings to uh, offset uh, other costs to them in terms of rent, then that's an issue too. So there are a lot of things that need to be worked out and worked out carefully. And uh, the that community is one that we'll really have to be worked with very carefully and a lot more attention is paid to in the future than has been done uh, uh, traditionally. So thank you. I support absolutely electrification. It's something that needs to happen, but if it's going to work for multifamily buildings, it's going to have to have the support of renters. Thank you. Okay, okay next we have Elise Hunter. Hello, uh, can everyone hear me? Yes. Hi, thank you for the opportunity to comment. Um, uh, my name is Elise Hunter. I'm a clean energy policy consultant living here in Alameda. Um, I'm also a member of CASA. Um, and I just wanted to, um, to echo Ruth Abbey's comments uh, to really encourage uh, this board to thoughtfully consider and to recommend uh, the adoption of this, this very um, well thought out decarbonization uh, plan that is being proposed um, by the city sustainability department. Um, as folks are pointing out, I think there are still a lot of things that need to be worked out. Um, but what I really like about the plan is its um, thoughtfulness and adhering to principles of equity in protecting renters um, and that those will be guideposts going forward as we develop more specific policies and programs um, so that we can go into this um, bringing the maximum amount of benefits to participants and um, being able to avoid negative and unintended consequences. One thing I wanted to just put a, a really a finer point on was the affordability piece. Um, we're going to need to pilot and demonstrate electrification um, in order to truly you know, understand what the benefits are. Um, thankfully, there are other communities that we can look at in California that are pursuing electrification. So um, we can go into this informed by Sacramento, by some communities in Southern California, um, other communities here in the Bay Area, um, and know that Alameda is not, you know, the first community to be pursuing this. There are lots of lessons we can learn throughout the state. Um, also, um, Alameda benefits from having very affordable rates from uh, Alameda Municipal Power, uh, much more affordable than uh, PG&E's electric rates or even gas rates, um, energy unit by energy unit. So you're already coming out of the gate with that advantage. Um, if somebody converts a gas appliance that is um, on PG&E rates and then moves over to an electric appliance, which will be on Alameda municipal power rates, there's an automatic savings there. So um, I really think that Alameda is in a unique position to really bring the benefits of electrification to its community um, and to do so in a thoughtful and equitable way. And I uh, just wanted to thank everybody uh, for this discussion and uh, really hope that we can move forward with this plan. Thank you. Thank you, next speaker. Okay, okay our next speaker is Melissa Hugh. 
Hi, planning board members. Good evening. Um, I am here. I'm, I'm Melissa Yu, and I'm with the Sierra Club, and I'm here today to also support um, the adoption of an equitable building electrific, uh, building decarbonization plan. And I appreciate the thoughtfulness in this conversation tonight by the board members. Um, most appliances are replaced almost every 10 to 20 years or even more than that. And we really need to um, take advantage of the equipment life cycles to really avoid locking in decades of fossil fuel infrastructure and to continue and to stop perpetuating um, the public health and safety and affordability risks um, to all, um, all households. And um, I, I again want to really thank the, the team like Danielle and the team for all of the work on this plan. Um, I think like previous speakers have said, there has a lot of thought that has gone into this to create a very, um, um, a great guideline for us to figure out how to get to our end goal of transitioning and from gas to electric households. Um, I think some of the questions that were asked by the board tonight were, were really great questions and questions that we will, that we, that, that I myself and many people in the building electrification and building decarbonization um, sector have, have been hearing time and time again of, of some of these challenges. Um, and some things that I've heard in, dur during this time have been to address things like the financial burden have been things like, um, creating cash for clunker appliance programs, similar to, to switching out like an older car to a newer car. Um, other things would be um, to coordinate with bay run or stock waste or utility programs or also um, um, AMP for, for um, Alameda. Um, and among other things would be just working with um, landlords to um, make sure that that families will not be displaced when retrofitting homes um, with newer appliances um, and also recognizing and understanding the concern of previous speakers, the landlord speaker who um, has concern about the costs um, of retrofitting. And, and I think Danielle also brought up the point of a lot of money coming down federally from the um, from the Inflation Recovery Act um, that will be really beneficial for building decarbonization. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done and a lot of people that need to come to the table, um, not only landlords, but tenants and workers and, and the utilities like AMP. So there's a lot to be done, but really excited that this conversation is happening and thank you for the time and consideration. Thank you. Um, looks like we don't have any further public comments, so I'm going to close the public comment portion of this agenda. Now I'd like to open for board discussions and comments. Um, board member Teague. Um, I'd like to thank everyone for speaking on this. Um, I would want to see two changes in this for me to recommend the city council, and they're both on page five in terms of the immediate goals is based on what I've heard tonight, I would wanna, instead of say develop ordinances, to say explore ordinances and the coordinate with staff and community regarding the impacts of electrification. The other action items and the other 
near term, long term, they're all about exploring and considering. And really here are just the two items that basically say, we don't really know the answer yet. We're going to work on it and we're gonna come forward with something. And I would wanna see those changes in order for me to support uh, recommending the city council move forward. Uh, I, uh, Andrew or Alan, can we amend this and recommend it? What, what is the process? Uh, so board member Teague, if you want to make a motion with those changes, um, you could certainly include that as part of your recommendation to the city council. And then um, uh, Ms. Mueller can also consider um, whether uh, presenting your the board's recommendation to the city council to make these um, um, amendments to the document. Okay, then, then I would move that we recommend uh, adoption of this plan by the city council only if they change the intermediate goals to be explore ordinances and coordinate with staff and community concerning the impact. And that only if is important. question is whether I can get a second. I'll second it for discussion. Thank can you, Board Member Teague and Board Member Hong. Discussion? And, yeah, if I may, um, um, President Rees, there's this plan, you know, very, very first word in the plan is equitable. And I struggle with, and there's a lot of Good discussion about how this benefits low income, you know, asthma, health issues, all of that, all very commendable. Um, part of my concern is that some of these programs, you know, for climate change, you know, whether transportation or other kind of policy matters, bottom line, it, it has a disproportionate impact on low income communities. And I'm concerned that with all the good things we want to do, and we're telling the communities, this is good for you. You know, there just seems to like, sometimes there's disproportionate impacts on these communities that is not recognized. I, I like to see on page 18, uh, where you talk about equity principles, I read those principles and to me, I don't, and I don't know the, what the right word is, but they just don't seem strong enough to me. You know, I think there needs to be really recognized that, you know, this plan will make a concerted effort not to not create a disproportionate impact on low-income communities. You know, renters tend to be more, more, you know, minority, uh, that minority population than the population as a whole. And I just see this, you know, could potentially impacting not renters, but low-income households, more so than moderate or high-income households. Like for me, quite honestly, you know, if I replace appliance and after electric, I probably manage, but you know, for low-income or renters or landlords that are kind of stressed and, and they pass the cost down, I just see the potential of this portrait impact on communities of color. So to a stronger statement on ensuring that we adopt programs that doesn't create this proportionate impact. I would like to see the equity principles 
um, you know, strengthen them a little bit there. Well, member Hom, are you asking to amend um, to amend the motion? Uh, uh, yes, yes. I, if I could offer a friendly amendment, I don't have to have precise wording other than the fact that I'd like to see the equity principles on page 18, you know, strengthened to ensure that um, whatever, whatever program to implement recognizes and, and avoids the disproportionate impacts on communities of color. I would accept. I would accept that amendment. the The first bullet is definitely an equity principle, and the other three are. I, I'm. I don't see the equity involved in those. Yeah, you know? I. I, I so totally the first agree. one is definitely there, and I would like to see stronger ones uh, as part of that. Yeah, I. You know, to me, is about community. Yeah, low and moderate income, but it's also let's let's be honest, communities of color. You know, let's let's be upfront and recognize that that's a unintended consequent uh, consequence that can happen. You know, I, I I think we just need to be honest about this and make sure we. Uh, and I think the plan does a really good effort. I really applaud the effort of the outreach over the months to get the community input and the fact that the plan stresses equity as the very first word. That's great, and obviously. You know, you know we, we need to move towards electrification and carbonization. There's no doubt about that with the climate situation. It's just to me, I'm always concerned that this creates a disproportionate impact on, on, on uh, you know, more underprivileged communities. And I, as long as we try to avoid that and recognize that upfront as a potential unintended consequence that we want to avoid. Uh, that's kind of where I'm getting at as far as, and I don't have the exact wording uh, on, on what that could be. I, I think I think staff can certainly come up with some some wording for that. I, I have a suggestion, board mm -hmm. member Hom. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the immediate, if we add to policy and programs, expand, expand upon the equity principles within the plan yeah. as a goal, yeah. Um, yeah, that would allow us to say, we want that done in the 22, 23 timeframe. Yeah, yeah, that I, that I think you summarize what I'm, what I'm trying to propose as the amendment without the specific language. So um, board members is narrow, I see your hand, but before I get to you, I have a procedural question for Alan. Um, so my understanding is this is a recommendation to the council, right? That's so, right. So every, all of our proposed changes is going to go to council as a separate document. As a recommendation. Vote. Yeah, as a recommendation, right. but not, but am I understanding you correctly, board member Teague, you're asking for a condition of approval, but that is not, I don't think procedurally that's how it works. No, procedurally, we decide what we're recommending to the city council. We right. decide. Right. So, so we, we can amend it. In, in those changes, the words, and the words can go there. And in the staff report, they can say, the planning board did this. The staff right. would recommend that you do this Plus, instead. Right. Right. But that okay. would not be the document that goes to the city council with our recommendation. The documentation would be as we amended it. And if it's something other than that, Alan, then I'm, I'm very confused as to what's going on. No, I think you can do that. I think the plan board can certainly do that and try to wordsmith the document. But I, I, I think 
um, another way of maybe presenting your recommendation to the city council might be to just uh, let the council know that this board is concerned about, so far I've heard really three things. One is that, um, and, and just hearing from other speakers too, that you know the, the, the devil's in the details, right? In the specific ordinances, how we're, how we're gonna set up the requirements, the actual thresholds, how the permitting works, um, that that is still to be explored. And so we could do that as part of ordinances. So I think that's what we're hearing. Number two is, um, there ne still needs to be more outreach that we're coordinating with not just staff, but the community. And that as part of the, when we're bringing back the ordinances, we also need to verify that um, the, the effect of the ordinances would not result in a disproportionate impact to um, disadvantaged communities or communities of color. So, um, I mean, if, if you want to include those three points in your motion, we could certainly, I feel like it would be, um, uh, easier for the council to understand what the board's concerns are. Um, I mean, that's, you can go in that direction um, as well as, as opposed to specifically requiring certain words, re, you know, modification that, of certain that text. Is, that is not my motion. My no. motion is okay. to change the document and present that as recommended. Okay. Thank you. And I would tend to agree. I, I think there's needs to be some revisions to the text in the plan and not just say address it when you prepare the ordinances. Sure. Okay. And right now the motion at hand is to amend the documents. In which case the the staff's uh, message to the city council would be when we report out would be the planning board recommends the council adopt the plan with the specific changes to the text, right? No. No. Here is the document that the planning board recommended. In your staff report, okay. you can say staff recommends changing X, Y, or Z if you disagree with us. Right, okay. But it's not- The other way around. They right. are very okay. different. I see that. That's why I wanted to bring it up and clarify because I think there's a, um, this is not how we normally proceed or in the past, usually it was brought to the yeah. council with our recommendation on the side. No, that just reflects the board has very strong concerns about these issues and you 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 want it to um, be presented to the council in that way. I get it. Thank you. Board Member Cisneros. Um, yeah, uh, quick clarification question with the long-term um it says consider neighborhood-based upgrades to service and panels um is that like intended to mean like mandatory well why or wise or um like what, what does that mean exactly um under amp Um, so that's just the idea that at some point down the, the road, we may be at a position where we're doing really wholesale, um, that it might be more cost effective for us to go for AMP to sort of do this on a neighborhood by neighborhood scale and, um, and not really, um, and thinking about this more holistically from a neighborhood perspective and from sort of a utility perspective, that there are some upgrades that we might just be able to, to, to go make um 
and and to do those types of upgrades um, across an entire neighborhood at a more cost-effective way. Um, so it's just something for us to consider in, in the long term as we're sort of getting more into this and doing more of these, um, these upgrades rather than always having it to be um, homeowner by homeowner specific or building owner by building owner specific, but there might be some, some scaling savings um, by sort of implementing a program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because um, I think it's, it's important that um, we emphasize like the voluntary component of this at first, especially given all the concerns and, you know, that language sounds very um, mandatory, I guess, <laughs> and so, and wide sweeping. Um, and, you know, I just have like, you mentioned it too in your presentation that um, this is so ambitious to do by 2030, like, you know, why rush it? And especially given the sensitivity of all these changes. So that's that's just a question I'm, I'm raised. I know it's, you know, we have uh, the CARB 2030, you know, plan is aligned with the state's plan and all that, but um, I, I did just want to voice that um, concern of, um, you know, really wanting to uh, lead in into that that voluntary, that buy-in, as opposed to like um, do anything too mandated or comprehensive, um, given all the issues. But um, you know, with that said, um, uh, I also wanted to you know bring up uh, or just you know plus one to all the concerns about displacement. Um, we have stronger statewide legislation um, for tenants, um, but because of COVID, we had um, moratoriums on evictions, but it's a whole new world now. And, um, you know, landlords are um, uh, getting creative with loopholes and uh, substantial renovations um, are susceptible to um, pushing tenants out and, and also smaller landlords can afford this. So just, uh, I'm just equally concerned about all the issues raised and supportive of needing to address our climate issues. So um, I, I just want to, again, emphasize the need to reach out to those who will be impacted and documenting um, those potential mitigations. So with that, I uh, also support the amendments um, proposed. Thank you, board member Cisneros. Board member Ariza. You're on mute. I said thank you for all the explanation and for the presentation, Danielle. Um, I, I just have a question on where you have the policies and programs of the immediate uh, goals. And, and it says to develop an ordinance requiring electrification um, when renovating or upgrading uh, with certain exceptions. What are the exceptions that, uh, are there exceptions in mind already or is that something that you're going to look into and think about this? Um, yes, this gets back to sort of what I was mentioning earlier um, about any potential um, measures that we would consider for requirements, really focusing on low hanging fruit where it's cost effective, where people are already planning upgrades um, to their appliances anyways. 
Um, and we're considering a whole range of, of exceptions to make sure that, you know, we're really targeting that type of, um, that type of project that it's so, for example, emergency replacements, thinking about exceptions for that, um, thinking about exceptions where there's technical infeasibility, where there might not be um, space for this type of electric water heater or where there might not be electric service or where maybe it would trigger a panel upgrade. We really want to avoid those kinds of um, more labor intensive um, upgrades at this time and really focus on sort of low hanging fruit. So we're, so we are weighing uh, a whole range of, of exceptions along those, those kinds of lines. I see. So that would kind of address one of the comments from one of the speakers, the public speakers, maybe, um, because if there is kind of difficulty upgrading, then that would become an exception. If the whole electric system, the system had to be upgraded to provide electric appliances, for example. Exactly. At this point, we really, we, we, Staff really understand this is very complicated. We have some very old, very complicated buildings in Alameda and we're very aware of that and really want to, to tread carefully as we're thinking about um, upgrades to those buildings. Um, at the same time, I think there are opportunities and the one of the, the public commenters mentioned, you know, not locking in emissions for decades and when we're replacing these appliances. Um, so we do think there are some opportunities or some low hanging fruit where it really does make sense to go in and, and make these changes and then paired with the, the rebates and incentives that are becoming available. Um, the, the, just from the Inflation Reduction Act, it's, it's on the order of $14,000 per housing unit um, in, in resources for these upgrades. And then that's paired with existing incentives, several thousands of dollars from AMP and, and then other incentives available from the state um, so I really, I can't emphasize how significant the financial resources that are going to be coming through, but we haven't seen them yet. So we don't exactly know what all of them are going to look like. So we're really focusing on, and we think the market's going to change. We think there's going to be a lot of developments. Um, so there's many things that just are, are going to be more complicated to do today. And, and we, we don't want to, to focus on those. We want to focus on where there are things that are immediately cost-effective that are, have immediate um, energy savings and, and that are really more simple to do or make more sense um, in, in today's conditions. Um, thank you, yeah, I get that. I, I almost feel like it would be beneficial for the document to expand a little bit more on, on these details so that um, it's more clear. The intent, and and I'm happy to do that. Um, and again, um, we will be we're working on this. You know, right now we'll be coming back to, to the planning board for your review of any particular ordinance um, that we might put forward. Um, and so we do sort of we we approach this plan as sort of a framework, a guide. Um, sort of the overarching policy direction that we're going in. Um, and there's not a lot of specificity sort of intentionally about any of the proposals because and we do talk about sort of what the options are um, in general, but, but then we'll be coming back with, with every one of those items um, and all the specificity that goes along with that. 
is sort of the approach we've taken. Thank you. Thank you, board members, for all your comments and, and also the public, as well as Ms. Miller, for your pre presentation and patience in answering our questions and concerns. Um, I understand that the devil's in details, and I look forward to you bring back the ordinances for specific ordinances for our review specifically as a concern electrification for new and existing building. And I will ask that you work with not just the planning staff, but building staff to incorporate, or um, if we choose to be more stringent, the new um, 2022 building code that is going to take in effect January, 2023. Um, because uh, California Building Co. has significantly upgraded the um, Green Building Co. in terms of electrification and its requirements for commercial spaces where gas appliances are to be provided. The parallel electrical infrastructure needs to be pro provided as well. And also look forward to um, your proposal on EV charging station. Um, will be required for new construction. So those, um, we look forward to seeing that. Um, question for Alan. The count, uh, as a city, we need to adopt the 2023 building code. Um, when is that, is that going straight to council? Uh, who's working on that? Or is that gonna come to the planning board? Uh, that's that's typically handled by our building official and okay. it goes to the city council only for um, um right to adopt the code as well as any amendments to it amendments right so uh, yeah. i don't know the status of um of, i would recommend that, that we work point. closely with that because this iteration is heavy on electrification and on green building code and um Ms. Miller and her department needs to be made aware of that and the progress so that those can be coordinated. Yeah, and our department and particularly the building official has been involved in, in these discussions, so. Great. And so um, with that said, um, in, I can support the motion at hand, although I prefer to be a separate um, recommendation, but given that um, we have board members strongly feel that they need to be amended, the text, I can support the motion at hand. So with that said, um, would you mind doing roll call on vote? Sure, uh, board member Reza. Aye. Cisneros. Aye. Hong. Aye. Board member Teague. Aye. President Ruiz. Aye. That motion passes 5-0. Thank you. Moving on to agenda. 7E, public workshop to review and give direction for the preparation of a development plan for the West Midway reshape project at Alameda Point. Um, Andrew, you're on mute. I know That's not going to work very well, is it? <laughs> Although everybody's probably going, oh, thank God, he's on mute. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh. I, um, <clears throat> this is a workshop. Uh, uh, I, what I'd like to do, um, given that it's already 10 o'clock, I'm going to try to make my comments relatively brief and relatively um, focused. And then um, the, our, our um, partners who are working on the West Midway project with the city of Alameda would also like 
um, some time and have presented some, um, have prepared um, some comments um, that they would also like to um, bring to the uh, planning board for tonight's workshop. Um, so if it's okay with um, the commission, I'd like to just share my screen and pull up the presentation, which was included in your packets um, for this workshop. And I will just quickly do this, whoops. Um, I'll just run through this very quickly. Um, so this is a workshop. <clears throat> we, city staff, are working with the uh, Brookfield Catellus development team on a plan for what we call the West Midway development area at Alameda Point. Uh, Catellus and West and, and Brookfield, that team was selected by the um, Alameda City Council um, to pursue a development plan at Alameda Point on a specific set of approximately 30 acres. Um, one of the requirements of that initial agreement is that um, the development team has to prepare a development plan for the area. That development plan needs to be specific, needs to be consistent with the Main Street specific plan for the area. And it has to, of course, be approved by the planning board. To approve a development plan, the planning board needs to make a finding of consistency with the specific plan. So that's state law and, um, and local, um, local law that we can't adopt a development plan unless the planning board can make a finding of consistency uh, with the specific plan. So um, two issues that we wanted to focus on tonight. Um, uh, the um, specific plan talks, it lays out the, 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 the city's vision for this area and the specific development standards and requirements for the development of this area. The Main Street specific plan is one of two specific plans done at Alameda Point. Not all of Alameda Point has specific plans, but the city council decided back in 2014, there are two areas of Alameda Point that are particularly important and really important that we do right. And therefore we need specific plans. It was the town center specific plan and this main street specific plan. Um, so planning board with city staff and the community developed a specific plan. It was recommended by the planning board and then ultimately approved by the city council. Um, First issue, which um, for staff is very important when designing these kind of large projects is the layout of the public infrastructure, the layout of the streets and parks. Um, the specific plan uh, has a whole chapter about this um, and it talks about how, um, how streets should be laid out in the main street specific plan. And one of the key things that's excerpted here on this slide is this concept that we wanna continue the existing primary grid of the city of Alameda in all new development, new development in this area, promoting street connectivity within Alameda Point and to the surrounding neighborhoods two key concepts in the specific plan. Um, the specific plan then, these are, these are pages from the specific plan, lays out a very specific set of streets in this area of Alameda Point. And the project area that we're working with is the bottom half essentially 
of the Main Street specific plan area from West Tower up to West, West Midway, which is the street that bisects the area just below this future Central Park area. So, um, and it shows a grid of streets. Um, there is an important aspect of this grid that is talked about in the Main Street specific plan, which is the collaborating partners site. The grid does not bisect that site. The reason being because it's housing, which also includes supportive services for the people who live there. So it's really considered sort of a integrated set of services and housing with children and seniors moving back and forth between buildings. So the idea, you don't want to punch a public street right through the middle of it. Um, but the other blocks, which were envisioned for residential, all have sort of a, a standard city of Alameda grid of streets. And the specific plan talks about how to lay out those streets, has several specific um, cross sections like this, all showing how you balance the need for automobiles, cars, and pedestrians, basically a complete street. And then from the staff's perspective, as we think about this and think about how do we implement these policies, of course, we're also thinking about the fact that we've already made some decisions about grids and streets when we did site A. So the bottom half of this slide, side, excuse me, the bottom half of this slide shows the site plan for measure for um, site A, which is the area that's with all the, well, you would all recognize it. It's the bottom half here. And there is a grid of streets, which are shown with the yellow arrows that shows you the grid. It's not a it's, it's not a completely uniform grid, but it is a grid of city blocks and city streets. And so, of course, what we're thinking about from staff's perspective and, and thinking about the, the two specific plans, we're moving from the town center plan north into the main streets um, specific plan, how those streets need to continue and connect so that each development sort of adds to the next and we have a continuous grid just like in the rest of the city of Alameda. So these yellow lines sort of represent how that grid moves as it, as it heads north and to the south. So this is the first major question that we wanted to bring to the planning board's attention. Um, the development plan that is currently on the table does not have, in our opinion, a full grid of streets consistent with the master plan. Um, there are some streets that are, you know, are full complete streets. They're shown in the thin red lines. The, the dotted blue streets are basically alleys that um, provide access to parking garages for townhomes. Um, when we analyzed this, this street network, um, it was very easy to sort of superimpose with our big thick arrows where the specific plan would call for streets. It would have streets cutting through these areas, not just paseos, but actual complete streets for cars, bicycles, and pedestrians. Um, this diagram also sort of prioritizes what we, at least from staff's perspective, are the most important connections to be made. And those are shown in the red arrows um, so that you have at least a, a partial grid um, uh, from, from a specific, you know, from a real, um, you know, from the specific plan would call for both the green and the red arrows to be there. But 
um, it, it, from our perspective, there's some segments of this grid that are absolutely essential, and those are, are those are shown in the red arrows. So on the quest, question of the grid, the, really the question for the planning board tonight is, if they don't make these changes, um, are you going to be able to make a finding of consistency with a specific plan? Um, uh, the Catellus Brookfield team will speak right after me, and, and, and they'll make the argument as to why they, you, they think you will be able to make that finding, even if you don't extend this grid as recommended by staff. Um, I'm just gonna skip over the, the park issue. There's, we think the parks, the parks need to be very public spaces, but I think for tonight, given the late hour and really the critical two questions to get direction from the planning board right now are the grid. And then the second issue is this a concept of diversity within blocks. Um, the specific plan has some very specific policy guidance about how do you create a neighborhood that is really reflective of Alameda neighborhoods. And it talks about the need to have diversity on each block, both economic diversity as well as aesthetic diversity um, to reinforce the creation of a diverse intergenerational and vibrant community. Um, Staff was concerned about the, the site plan um, because it does a couple things um, that we felt were not fully consistent with the specific plan. Um, the product types are segregated by block. So you have the reshape project on the top left. Um, that is that integrated community that I mentioned earlier that makes sense that it be sort of um, you know, was thought of as a component within the plan. But then the green block is what's called the workforce housing. So that's um, a lower cost product. It's all grouped on the green block. The most expensive blocks are the du uh, products are in the duet block, which is on the top right. And then there's a variety of other three in one area of four-story townhomes. Um, our concern about this site plan and its consistency with a specific plan is that issue of, of, of mixing it up, that, that, that sense that there's not enough diversity. Um, two things really come to mind immediately. One is why not mix some of these product types, sort of which was done in, in, on one little block with the red arrow pointing to it. Like doing more of that would at least mix up create more diversity in terms of income within the blocks, um, if you had different housing types on each block. Um, the other issue that, that we're concerned about is this sort of the aesthetic diversity. This, if you went through the, um, the um, applicant's development plan, you'll see that essentially all the blocks uh, outside of the reshape square are um, essentially three-story townhome, type buildings. So everything's three stories. Um, everything's alley loaded. Um, along the southern border, there's a fourth story, but it's a very uniform all the way across. Um, so the second question for the planning board tonight is, um, are you comfortable with this site plan in terms of its um, the amount of diversity and would you be able to make a finding of compatibility and consistency with a specific plan if if no further efforts were made to diversify these blocks um, from staff's perspective um, we're not able to make those findings for the street grid being consistent and with the diversity of the blocks being consistent with what we all imagined 
would and are and established in the specific plan. But at the end of the day, it's not staff that has to make the finding. It's the planning board that has to make the finding. So, um, and it's okay for the planning board to disagree with staff. Um, but if the, if the planning board can't make the finding as well, then it's very important that we, the city, inform our development partners that, that changes are gonna be necessary to comply with the specific plan. And, and the sooner we tell them that, uh, the better. So with that, I'm just going to wrap my presentation. Um, I know that the Catalyst Brookfield team and their design consultants would love an opportunity to um, sort of give you the, the sort of their arguments uh, on this. And um, if that's okay, uh, President Ruiz, I'm going to close down my presentation now and um, yes, pass it on you. to the Catalyst Brookfield team. Thank you, Andrew, for the, um, the summary and the presentation. And so... Um, does the applicant, is, who is going to be sharing? Oh, we need to promote. Um, um, Why don't we start with Sean Whiskerman? He's probably the one. Actually, to start. I think we, we need to promote one more person. We need to promote um, David Burton, two panelists. Right. I believe. Okay, he here they be come. Doing, yeah. They're all popping in. Where did he go? And is Josh Josh Roden um, also? Who else do we need to promote? There's okay, Josh Roden. Okay, Josh Roden. And Abby Putlori. There's David. And we, um, Donning, we also need to prov um, promote Abby Putlori. And I was going to share screen with our PowerPoint presentation. You should be able to. Okay. Um, Sarah, is that everybody? Yeah, we're just looking for Josh. Um, let's see. I don't see him in the attendees list. Dunning here. I did uh, promote him. Yeah, he's, yeah, Josh is promoted as well. Thank you. Well, great. So I believe um, David will share um, the presentation and we will start with, um, with Sarah and Reshape. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Sarah McIntyre and I'm with Midpen Housing. And I want to kick off our West Midway presentation this evening with a brief overview of the Reshape portion. So Reshape stands for Rebuilding Existing Supportive Housing at Alameda Point. Since 1999, the three Reshape collaborating partner agencies have provided housing and services at Alameda Point to those experiencing homelessness. Alameda Point Collaborative is shown in yellow here. Um, serving 350 formerly homeless families. Uh, in blue is Building Futures, which serves homeless survivors of domestic violence and their children. And in green, Operation Dignity, serving veterans. These 200 units of supportive housing are in buildings that were constructed as temporary Navy housing, and they're very expensive to maintain and lack accessibility features. They're also surrounded by abandoned buildings and there's a critical need 
for new infrastructure and utilities to the entire area. Because of the dire need for new housing, the collaborating partners have been working on a redevelopment plan since 2007 and in 2015 brought on Midpen Housing as a development partner. And in 2017, Reshape's initial development plan uh, was approved as part of the Main Street specific plan process. And in 2018, we entered into a DDA with the city. And the key focus for the city's efforts have been to create new high quality accessible housing for the hundreds of formerly homeless families living out at Alameda Point. Go to the next slide. So the shared vision for the reshaped community was and continues to be developed with resident input. We conducted two very big design workshops with residents in 2015, um, as well as one-on-one -on -one interviews and focus groups with residents and staff. And this informed the initial reshaped development plan that was approved in 2017 um, as part of that Main Street specific plan process. And, uh, but that was before the mark rate developer was brought on board. So we can go to the next slide. So we've now had the opportunity to work closely with Brookfield and Catellus to prepare this new joint development plan, um, which we're here to discuss today. And this will create an inclusive new neighborhood for the existing and future residents. And some of the constraints that had to be taken into consideration included not only installation of all new infrastructure, but also a phasing plan that does not displace the existing residents. The reshaped vision that was created by these residents continues to inform the new reshaped development plan, which is shown here in the top left corner at West Midway and Pan Am Way. And some of the recurring themes that were brought up by the reshaped residents um, that were critical to the initial development plan and this one here included safety, prioritizing pedestrian and bike infrastructure and avoiding cut through streets, as well as creating safe spaces for residents who may have suffered past traumas while also providing opportunities to connect with the overall neighborhood. And note that we are currently refining the reshape site plan um, shown here with more detail for when we return to the planning board for approval of the development plan. And uh, really a key to the success of the reshape project is a West Midway development partner to complete the infrastructure and site prep that needs to be completed for the entire area before the reshape portion can begin. So we're very excited to now have Brookfield and Catellus as that partner and for the opportunity to build on the success of site A phase one um, to the south and make this longstanding vision a reality to build much needed accessible, energy efficient homes and supportive services for families and veterans experiencing homelessness as part of a new inclusive and revitalized West Midway neighborhood. So I'll pass it off to Sean from Catellus for the next slides. Thank you, Sarah. Um, good evening, President Ruiz and, and members of the planning board. Um, just wanted to give you a real quick, we know it's when it's late, um, but just to give you a quick uh, overview of Catellus. So Catellus has been uh, actively developing in Alameda for over 20 years, uh, primarily including the, the neighborhoods of Bayport, Alameda, and Alameda Landing, uh, facilitating those residential neighborhoods as well as developing the um, Alameda Landing Shopping Center, the Target and Safeway Shopping Center. And we're 
Um, excited, we sold uh, our final residential phase um, along the Alameda Landing Waterfront last year and are completing the Alameda Landing Waterfront Park, uh, which will be turned over uh, to City Park and Rec here um, in, in the next month or so. It's a very exciting uh, milestone for our project. So all total here, um, you know, we've, we've developed over $250 million worth of infrastructure um, that's brand new infrastructure serving these communities and it's really creating a, a vital connection to Alameda Point. Um, and delivering infrastructure for reshape is the key to unlocking this project for their 309 residential units. And we really wanted to emphasize too that, that the development plan that you see before us has 789 residential units with over 50% of them with some, some sort of affordability, which is a remarkable stat in our opinion. And when we're ready to get started. Um, so we've combined forces uh, with one of uh, the country's strongest residential developers in Brookfield um, to convert the city's vision into reality for West Midway. This is a really important night for our project and, uh, and we're looking forward to engaging um, uh, in, in discussing some of these critical points with you tonight. And, um, and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Josh uh, Roden of Brookfield. Thanks, Sean. Uh, good evening, everybody. And I'm going to touch quickly just on the residential aspect of it. Um, Brookfield, as Sean mentioned, uh, we have a significant amount of uh, experience in master planning um, large communities throughout the U.S. and Canada. And with that, we, we actually focus heavily on the customer experience within the land planning process um, and creating a better community so that people that feel more engaged and increase their quality of life. And so we've done a number of focus groups across the country and and even here in the Bay Area. And so when we go and, and do these planning efforts, we actually are coming at it with a lot of um, knowledge base about what we are trying to achieve that's best for the community and those that are gonna be living and working in it. So um, as we went through this and and really, you know, Andrew brought up the, some of the points about the grid system and you know, we've modified our plan having to move the reshape site over to the, uh, from the east side to the west side. And we've intently tried to follow the grid as much as possible with both the use of streets and pedestrian. Uh, because one of the things that we found in, in residential focused neighborhoods uh, where many of the people that are gonna be driving into them are either there to visit, live or drop something off and not necessarily moving through it significantly is a sense of, of safety in those neighborhoods. And so we do try to limit how much actual traffic is, is running through them. And so you'll notice when we get, um, when the team gets to the uh, layout of our streets and pedestrian pathways, that we are making a concerted effort and have changed the plan to get where we have the grids that go through the community to other streets adjacent. But those that are more within, we are focusing a little bit more on those neighborhoods uh, to make sure we're doing a, a quality job with the experience within. Um, and then we also have really focused a lot on the diversity of the uh, different neighborhoods. So we have a, a two different architects involved in that um, already. Um, we've actually included the workforce um, neighborhood, uh, which is, is not a requirement in the specific plan, but a, an objective. And uh, instead of going for a waiver on that, we actually embraced it. 
Um, so we have a workforce neighborhood that will be market rate and workforce by design, uh, affordable by design. And so we'll have units that range from 900 square feet up to 2,200 square feet. And um, anything from a one bedroom up to four bedrooms. And so we have quite a bit of variety just in, in the different uses. Uh, it'll be largely for sale housing is the current plan. And, um, and when we do these communities, the, there's some examples here of, of uh, the Boulevard Master Plan where we have uh, 21 different uh, neighborhoods and, and uh, over 1,700 homes. So we do have a variety of architecture within a neighborhood. Um, so we're able to do different elevations um, with different buildings and create some diversity, both in the unit count in a building and also um, the different architectural styles with each building. Um, so it's a goal that we have in creating some of the best communities. In fact, that's one of our taglines is best places to call home. Um, so we take it very seriously. And I'll hand it off to David, you're next. Thanks, Josh. Um, good evening, Vice President Ruiz and members of the board. Uh, David Burton, the Executive Director with KTGY. Um, we've been uh, spearheading the design efforts for the, the plan here. Um, pleased to be back before the board tonight, uh, presenting uh, uh, as part of a terrific team, uh, presenting a terrific plan. Um, first, a little bit about the evolution of the plan. On the left, you see um, the Main Street neighborhood specific plan uh, as it was laid out originally, which envisioned the reshaped portion in the northeast corner of the site, uh, maintaining Orion Street through the center of the site and local streets being used to create Alameda scale blocks. Uh, the team tried numerous layouts using that basic framework, um, but the need to phase demolition of the existing APC and Operation Dignity housing and the constraints of working with the original street network made the site pretty efficient and fragmented. Uh, Orion Street and the location of the previously approved reshape site made all the layouts feel a bit like there was a barrier between reshape and the rest of the neighborhood with the big wide street that is Orion, uh, especially. And so we developed in conjunction with, with uh, city staff, uh, this the new layout that you see on the right with reshape in the northwest corner of the site. And we think there's a lot of improvements that we've been able to make by doing making that shift. <clears throat> We're able to reintegrate the reshape uh, portion of the site into the overall neighborhood a lot better uh, with the interface being uh, across a much more intimate local streets and, and better supporting opportunities to have housing of different varieties facing each other across the street and making connections into the neighborhood and through into the reshaped portion of the, of the site. Uh, the new eight layout also allows for better phasing and de demolition and construction. And then it also uh, allows for a more efficient block layout, which is be able to let us increase the total number of units on the site substantially uh, while still providing good, comfortable scaled uh, uh, areas within the, within the site. And then the new layout also gives us a better chance to make the north-south north -south street alignments um, with site A. Uh, the two most important principles that are informing the site plan kind of goes along with what Andrew is talking about. Uh, first is the circulation network, uh, which ties into the current and planned surrounding network of, of, of streets. In the north-south direction, Orion Street's kept in its current alignment, 
uh, Skylark Street here um, uh, continues up from site A and does a little bit of a, a wiggle and then continues up straight to where there's anticipated to be another connection uh, in the future phases of the Main Street neighborhood. So continuing that grid there. And then on the more westerly side, uh, we have Ardent Way, which is anticipated to, it doesn't exist there right now, but it's anticipated to be part of the Site A uh, plan. And we've been able to continue that up and in uh, through um, our portion of the site. In the east-west direction, uh, West Ranger, there's an entrance into the reshape portion of the site that lines up there. And it'll be a combination of some some vehicular traffic, some pedestrian uh, connection that goes through there. And then we continue that through the site primarily as a uh, pedestrian and bike multi-use path. Uh, and the same down at Street C uh, lines up with an alley uh, in, behind the Almanac Beer Company and comes through as a street through this portion of the site, a local street, and then turns into a bike and pedestrian multi-use path uh, through the rest of the site. Uh, one important detail that we've been mindful of um, is that the reshape partners requested to not have straight through streets bordering their, their site on the south and east sides, uh, as I think was touched on by Sarah, uh, to, in order to provide a calmer environment, uh, especially for residents who have been uh, or might be recovering from past traumas. So we really try to be mindful of that. Uh, the next thing, uh, the second principle that informing this is this idea of compact pedestrian scale block sizes. The block sizes that we're developing here are consistent with ones found throughout Alameda, as well as in Alameda Landing, Bayport, and Site A. The emphasis uh, as envisioned in both Site A and the Main Street specific plans is on compact block sizes that are scaled for someone walking and not driving. Uh, when the team reviewed the Main Street neighborhood specific plan, one thing that really jumped out at us was the strong and repeated uh, emphasis on creating a grid network that connects with the surrounding community and that is walkable in scale and emphasizes pedestrian and bike circulation over vehicular circulation. These principles are clearly enunciated in the street design principles outlined in the city of Alameda general policies you see here and which are taken verbatim from the Main Street Neighborhood Specific Plan. Our plan directly translates these principles into a neighborhood plan. Our grid breaks down the larger neighborhood into compact walkable blocks consistent with the existing patterns around us and throughout the city. Our plan continues, as I stated before, the North South streets into and through our neighborhood to connect with Site A. Our plan creates new east-west connections that create a complete bike and pedestrian oriented grid. And we have created a plan that allows all residents to access the neighborhood, nearby parks, schools, and shopping via a bike network that is separated from cars. As you can see, um, the red lines that you see represent streets that have a two-way cycle track. The blue represents a street with one-way cycle track on each side of the street. Green represents a street with bike lanes, and the orange represents a multi-use path for pedestrians and bikes that is separated from vehicular traffic. Uh, one other thing, a little thing I wanted to point out that we really we like about this um, 
Let me get my cursor going. This pathway through here is that it frames a view all the way along through this whole entire site of Salesforce Tower uh, in downtown San Francisco. So it really kind of visually extends our site out into the larger Bay Area context. And we think that's a really nice little detail um, for, the, for, the, for the neighborhood. So when the neighborhood is complete and the city completes some long planned improvements, someone on a bike will be able to travel on a safe and separated route to get to the ferry at Seaplane Lagoon, local parks, Ruby Bridges Elementary School, NIA and ACLC, Ensenal High School, Alameda Landing, and the Cross Alameda Trail. We believe this prioritization of bike and pedestrian mobility is the best and most accurate manifestation of the principles and vision set out in the specific plan and general plan policies. Uh, here, we just, I just wanted to show you this. This is a quick mock-up that we did to study how our site ties into the larger overall network around us. Uh, don't want to really spend much time on this, but if we need to kind of talk about those kind of connections, we can always come back to this if you guys want to talk about it. Uh, the second bit, uh, Andrew's presentation questions whether there should be a mix of building types on each block. Uh, we believe that our overall diversity of housing types, multiple architects designing various housing types, and by employing a variety of building styles within each building type, that we can achieve the diversity that the specific plan calls for. Uh, this neighborhood will have no less than eight different types of residential structures. Within the reshaped portion of the site, there's going to be at least three building types, uh, housing Alameda Point Collaborative, Operation Dignity, and Building Futures. Uh, the duets, which you see as uh, number one on your screen here, uh, will have a very varied massing that steps up uh, between two and three stories. So it's not just, you know, flat three-story buildings. They're going to be very carved up, you know, good expression to those. Uh, we have two types of three-story townhouses, and those are going to be designed by different architects. And they'll have, also have their own varied massing and expression. Uh, we have uh, four-story condo buildings uh, along the south edge of the site, and these buildings also have uh, very varied massing. They have three-story porches that step the building down towards a more pedestrian scale at the street. They have three stories uh, on the back sides of the buildings and the small portion that's four stories towards the center of the building. And then we have uh, three-story condos, what's been referred to as our workforce housing. And these buildings will have some three-story portions, but they'll also have a significant portion of their massing that's only two stories high, providing for good visual interest and variety. And then in addition to the residential typologies, there will be the commercial corner at Pan Am Way and West Tower and, um, and a community serving building within the reshaped parcel. Each street within this project uh, will have at least three and as many as five building types uh, along each street with designs by different architects. We believe that this will result in a wide variety of building heights and massing and expression uh, all, all in itself. But we can also look at a number of recent examples of residential development in Alameda, as well as in other communities, to see that even where a street frontage consists of one building typology, it's possible to create a great architectural variety. And we've collected a few examples here. Uh, on the left, you see Alameda Landing. The Fifth Street frontage there is lined on one side by three-story condominium buildings. 
The buildings you see in the photos there on the left, they all have the exact same floor plan, but you can see that we've been able to give them very different architectural expressions so that you do get great variety in massing and colors and materials and details as your, as your eye moves down the street. On the right-hand side of the slide is the Mulberry development um, near McKinley Park, and that consists of three-story townhouses. And the two buildings you see on the top and the bottom there again, have the exact same floor plan, but they're given very different massing, very different architectural style, different materials. And so you can create tremendous visual variety using the same plan. Uh, at the middle at the top is Marina Shore uh, along Clement Street. Uh, in this project, the townhouses along there along Clement have, again, have identical floor plans, but through changes in roof shapes, porches and bay details and color, we were able to create good visual variety. And lastly, the two center images, uh, lower center images, are a project that we uh, have under construction at the Warm Springs BART station uh, down in Fremont. And these are townhouses. And again, exact same floor plan, but you can see that we're able to achieve very different architectural expression and massing and articulation of, of units and things. Uh, and create a good visual variety. So we think that we're doing a great job with that um, and I would hope that you would agree. And I'm gonna hand it off to Jason Victor, our landscape architect. All right, great. Uh, David, thank you very much. And uh, uh, President Ruiz and the uh, members of the board, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's great to be back in front of this group. Um, as Sean was describing all the things that Catellus has been doing on the, on the island for the last 20 years, uh, we've been right there with them doing a lot of the planning and landscape architecture work for, for all of those accomplishments. So happy to be on the point, uh, assisting uh, Sean and, and Josh and the team uh, on these front. And I think what I'm going to do, um, I'm going to, in efforts to combat, I think, the yawns that we're all fighting back, um, I'm going to take Andrew's cue to be very brief on the uh, the open space components here. Uh, but I think there's some really important things to, to emphasize as, as uh, as this portion of, of the point is evolving uh, kind of from south to north with Site A now and on to reshape uh, our West Midway efforts uh, and in the future as the Main Street neighborhood continues, you know, the, 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 the stress and, and consistency of, of the connectivity, the grid system and that neighborhood feel being one expression. I think that's really some of the key takeaways that that I uh, you know took away from discussions with Andrew as we got on board here. You know how does the open space network uh, contribute to that uh, primary approach uh, in, in what we're trying to accomplish here? And I think the the graphic on the on the right uh, really shows the power of the connectivity that's embedded in uh, the grid system that that exists. What we're showing here, uh, highlighted in in the in the dashed lines. It is, is literally just the public street network uh, that is also supported by private connections, uh, both streets and, and paseos and others, um, where there is an, an incredibly robust uh, offering of open space and park uh, amenities and opportunities. Uh, and the reality of the blue line that's emphasized that will someday go to the central gardens through our space um, with the, the, the West Midway plan, and then through side A down to the seaplane lagoon and the, the park and the ferry terminal is there. That's a little over a half a mile. That's really a 10 minute walk. So the, the connections here that are made 
um, incredibly robust for the residents that are going to be here. Our green space and open space connectivity system is connected to that fabric, uh, and in particular the connection through uh, on Orion uh, to link all those cha all this chain of parks together um, and make sure that we're we're emphasizing those connections. So next slide. Uh, the key thing here, uh, the, the ground plane from a landscape and open space perspective uh, has to do a lot of things. Um, it's made up of, I'll call it three primary elements uh, from, from a landscape and use perspective. Again, going back and really re uh, reinforcing and emphasizing our grid and the connections. Uh, we know we have the streets covered. Uh, we, are, we are making a, a very strong linkage and connection, I think has been described uh, multi-use trails uh, running east-west through the through the uh, through the plan in the, both the linear greenway and the greenway corridors uh, to emphasize that east-west movement from pedestrian bicycle standpoint, uh, attaching to that uh, very strong fabric that's already there with the the street network around us, um, and then the the landscape spaces and open spaces that are afforded. Uh, we've got a, a variety. We have what I'll call program spaces, which are really the ones that are identified, such as the active park, the community corner, uh, that are that are bolstered by the greenway corridor and linear greenway, um, that are all serving those important functions of of on-site amenity and connection. Uh, and in particular, as well, the darker green colors are something that we're calling the functional landscapes, in which. Um, those are doing a lot of things. They're programmed as much as they can be, uh, pedestrian amenities, uh, wayfinding elements, seating areas, shade, all the things that you'd want to get from a community like this. But they also need to help serve an important role from a landscape perspective in stormwater gardens and helping uh, manage our, our uh, C3 and stormwater uh, regulations that we need to manage as well. So uh, a beautiful landscape designed around bringing all of those things together. Uh, and I think you'll, in next slide, you're gonna see, uh, and you've probably been through the package, there's some uh, initial thoughts and, and indications of what some of these program spaces might be able to become. Uh, an active park in the linear greenway, for instance, that's a, a quarter acre space that can uh, accomplish a lot of great things for not only the community that's here, and I think it's an important thing to, to mention, the, that bigger grid of, of open space opportunities that we reviewed early, that's all public. Uh, and a lot of it was public park and dedicated for that. These are also intended to be publicly accessible. These might not be publicly dedicated parks, uh, but everything that we're viewing here, the connections, the spaces, all of that is open for, for all the residents to, uh, to move through, uh, to use and enjoy. So that is really an intent of this too, is to make uh, uh, to make these spaces that we're we're connecting to this larger system uh, be a contributor to all of those things for the neighborhood. So maybe with the next slide, I'll leave it there. We'll just uh, open it up for questions and and discussion. We can go from there. Thank you for the presentation. Um, again, I'll open up for board member questions. Um, given that it's late, I will ask that please keep your questions succinct. And um, then I'll open up for um, public comments. Then moving back to for comments. Board Member T. Thank you for the presentation. I'm going to be very, hopefully, short. So in the original design, there's a certain amount of space that was going to be dedicated for parks. How does this relate if you don't count 
the parks that were created by not having roads. Maybe I'll take a stab at that. Um, the overall Main Street neighborhood specific plan, um, which I, I helped write, <laughs> uh, really emphasized this central gardens and a couple of smaller garden spaces up in this northern section as the major public garden uh, and open spaces. The This portion of the site that we're developing there wasn't really anticipated that there were going to be major green spaces there. And so what we've really tried to do, as uh, Jason talked about, is have this very, very, very robust uh, system of connections that gets you to that future central gardens, gets you connected by a strong bike and pedestrian path down to the whale park, down to um, the Seaplane Lagoon waterfront park, where those major public parks are located, that they're really very accessible, very close by. Okay. So David, basically by not having the east-west grid layout as paved streets, we're getting green streets effectively uh, for that area. Right, and really trying to make sure that that bike uh, network especially flows both in that north-south direction and an east-west direction. Um, Thank you. Accessibly. Hey, David, do, do you want to touch on 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 that those east-west connections and and really where they don't go? I mean, there there really aren't connections. They're not connecting. Yeah, in terms of whether if these were were vehicular streets, um, if you were coming east-west and you got out to Main Street, there's no connection across into the Bay Port neighborhood, and there never will be. Um, so it's, and then as you go the other way, like I said, it kind of goes into an alley. There's a gated, uh, you know, um, you know, a chain link gate here that keeps you from moving in that direction. I don't know that that's ever actually planned to be any kind of a public street. So this isn't really a route that people are going to be driving. It's really West Tower and West Midway and how we get folks in who need to drive out to those routes and out. And so there's not necessary. and again, West Ranger, we've aligned there, but it's not envisioned uh, and not desired to have cars moving through the heart of the reshaped neighborhood. And so there's never gonna, you know, we don't, we actually actually do not want a good strong vehicular connection through this central portion of the site. We really want to de-emphasize the car in that direction. So we've made good vehicular connections where it's important to do that. But in other places, we really tried to make it as pedestrian and bike friendly as we possibly can to reinforce uh, that as a preferred method of mobility uh, once, you're, once you're on site. Thank you, Board Member Teague, and thank you for the responses. Board Member Hong, please. Yeah, I'm just going to ask three real quick questions, and this is for staff to kind of understand the concept of the plan. Uh, first question is, how how the plan has this strong grid system concept? To do, to what degree is the flexibility for vehicular versus pedestrian bike 
um, to kind of satisfy that grid. That's kind of first question. Second yeah. question is, um, you know, what is there a height limit um, that kind of wondering, you know, how much uh, latitude there is and in in, uh, in the height of these buildings. And the third is when when the plan calls for a variety of different housing types. I know this plan is trying to meet that with architectural variety, but what about you know the actual housing types and population served? How how does the plan address beyond architecture housing variety? Well, I'll I'll, I'll take those. I'll try to do it quickly. Um, so this the specific plan is pretty specific. It's it's complete streets, vehicles. Mm -hmm bicycles, pedestrians. I mean, then there's a very specific cross-section that shows what it's recommending. So for us, that's just first and foremost why we as city staff are having trouble making a finding of consistency. Um, the, the David and Jason and all, I mean, you know, certainly, you know, a strong argument for why it's a good plan. The question in our mind is not that it's a bad plan or a good plan. It's like, can we is it consistent with what we and the residents of Alameda and the people who developed the specific plan envisioned? It just seems like a different plan than what we envisioned. Um, in terms of the diversity, oh, the height limits, um, the specific plan does talk about, uh, in this general area, I don't have it right in front of me, but any, you know, uh, height limits of um, three, four, I think uh, five stories is allowable, but I'd have to double check. Um, and in terms of the, um, you know, so I think in terms from a, from, you know, maximum height limits, the, what, what they're proposing sort of, sort of fits into that. Um, and then the diversity, I think, you know, the, the part, there's that one little block off of main street where they, where they've got a plan of mixing, you know, two different kinds of townhome product on the same block. Um, it's, they're both three-story townhomes. They're just a, a different product type, um, presumably different price point, uh, just mixing it up. You know, the, the workforce housing, um, which is a product type that the council specifically asked for, um, is all, which is basically a, a you know, a, a lower cost version of a townhome. Um, it's all on one block not mixed. Um, you know, we've always tried to mix up things as much as we could um, in Alameda. So I think, you know, what's enough mixing? That's a judgment call. The, 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 the specific plan doesn't have real strong criteria around that. Um, President Ruiz, if I may interrupt, um, since we are approaching 11 o'clock, we do need a vote of the board to extend the meeting past 11. And also, and also to decide whether to um, pick up any of the outstanding items on your agenda. Okay, so do I need to stop the um, discussion right now to take a vote? Yes, so motion okay. to extend the meeting past 11 o'clock and also which items um, we have still meeting minutes and staff communications. Okay, do I have a motion? I move to continue the meeting until 11.30, not picking up any further items. Do I have a second? I'll second. Board member Ariza? Sure. Aye. Cisneros? Aye. Hong? Aye. Teague? 
Aye. President Ruiz. Aye. The motion passes. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Sorry to um I think Foreman Maham, please continue. Oh no, I I those are my three questions. I wanted to ask them real quickly. Thank you. Um, would you mind lowering your hands, um, board members? Oh, oh, sorry. Let's see. Go, go. Just assume my hand is lowered. I have to change my screen a little bit. I go. had a question, so my hands raised. So. I know board members is narrow. Oh, so you're calling me? Okay. Either you're telling me to lower my hands. Sorry, <laughs> retired. Um, thanks so much. Uh, my uh, quick question. I know this is a study session, but uh, which is curious. Um. Uh, what would happen if we uh, agreed or with the staff that this was not in compliance? I know this is one of the um, sites identified in our housing element. So it's an important project uh, for our housing goals. Um, I wonder if anyone, if staff or someone could address that. Yeah, I can, I mean, from staff's perspective, it, it obviously it would, it would force a, um, some redesign that might change the financial equations on this project um, that will have to be factored into the financial conversations that are ongoing currently between the city and the development team. Um, this is a public-private partnership between a public agency, the city of Alameda, and um, a private, a, a pair of private companies. So. Um, the uh, uh, what we would we would the design team would redesign the street network um, that might change some of the economics on the project for them um, and then those changes in economics would have to be brought to the ongoing negotiations about the economics of the project which are part of the disposition and development agreement so there's multiple conversations going on um, with between the city and the development partner right now, land use discussions, which is what we're having here, but also financial discussions. Um, and, you know, um, I think the city, in some cases, financial decisions may determine land use decisions, and in other cases, land use decisions may determine, you know, financial. It's sort of a back and forth conversation. Um, but this is an important question. If the, if the Alameda Planning Board and community are comfortable with this grid and can make that finding, then um, you know, they won't redesign. If, you, if, uh, if, if the Planning Board does feel like the grid is important and for consistency with the specific plan, then it will require a redesign, which will probably raise some new financial issues for the project. Um, but like I said, it's a public-private partnership um, the, city, the city has a financial stake in this project as well. Thank I mean, you. I, I would add too that, that I mean, it's, this has been a very you know, kind of highly efficient plan. Uh, it's been very thoughtful, um, you know, from, from our perspective and, and working with Reshape 2 um, and, and, you know, kind of changes. Um, it, it'll be, it's, it's time, it's gonna take time. And, and this is a priority project for, for the city, for us, for certainly for Reshape. Um, uh, and, and so it's, it's um, you know, it's a time would be, I mean, the economic impacts would need to be studied too, uh, but, but time is, is, is critical as well. So I don't know, Josh, if you had anything you wanted to, to add. 
Uh, no, I think you guys hit on it. Um, you know, I think the other thing that we think of oftentimes when we are doing a land plan like this and trying to create the best, best community feel we can, we're also trying to limit the amount of uh, necessary infrastructure because that's, um, you know, the more streets, the more maintenance that's required by the public if it's, if it's a public street. Um, it's additional cost for the infrastructure. Um, so we are sort of thoughtful on how we do that, but also appreciate, you know, there is a specific plan that, that we're, we're fitting this in. So um, that's why it's one of the discussion points here. Thank you. Um, just want to remind you, everyone, that we're still in the questions section. We're not in the comments section yet. So um, this is just for question, clarifying questions. Remember, Riza? You have your um, Yes, thank you. I, I, I thank you for that reminder. I, I think, I guess my question, I, I was going to comment, but I guess my question is, was there a reason why the design didn't follow the guidelines of the specific plan initially? If there was a specific plan in place, um, what was the reason for the design not to follow it? and provide the grid line, the street grid line, for example. I, you know, I'll kick it off. I think part of it is there, there are a number of different objectives in the specific plan. So some of the deviations from the grid are meeting some of the other objectives in the specific plan um, for pedestrian and bike friendly. Um, and then we did focus quite a bit on the emphasis of this street grid where you see the streets that do pass through to other adjacent communities. So where we don't have the street grid continuing is, is mainly within the West Midway plan. So like Orion goes through um, the other one on the right-hand side um, that has a little jog in it that does connect down to site A. Um, and the mainly the east-west don't really have connections to either Main Street to, to the Bayport community to the right or to the left um, next to Pan Am uh, with the reshape site there. That Ranger one is really the one that's passing through, but we don't, you know, don't don't have a connection there. So they aren't connecting through to adjacent uh, neighborhoods outside of West Midway. So so we've emphasized the ones that are important for the connection through from a vehicular. Um, and, and so there was some intent there, obviously, um, with that. But so we've, we've felt like we've had a good compromise in how we've laid this out, um, balancing the different uh, objectives in this specific plan. David, if, could you go back to the slide that showed the, the specific plan next to the current plan? Um, so I think I know, so the, the image on the left is from the Main Street specific plan. And you can see that site that says Collaborating Partners. That's where Reshape, um, that's where Reshape's approved development plan was in the Main Street specific plan. So you can see there's kind of a grid around it. Um, and then when it was actually a recommend, recommendation of staff to consider looking at moving the Reshape parcel um, to, along Pan Am instead, um, in part to take advantage of the city's reuse 
project because the city is currently installing utilities and infrastructure along Pan Am. And that's really been the nut to crack with the reshape project. Like I mentioned, we, you know, had our plan approved in 2017. And, and the key part to get the, to be able to rebuild the housing that's in really poor condition is the infrastructure and the market rate partner to put that in. So one, one of the reasons the grid is not connecting as much is because when you flop the reshape portion over to the left, you know, that's why, um, you know, that Ranger Street's not going through because that was a, the key part of the, of our plan has always been um, not having cut through streets and that that's why it's shown as such in the left. So there's a little bit of adjustment that Brickfield could tell us had to make to honor, you know, our residence vision for our site and then continue the network around us. Um, and honestly, it's actually a, not just on an infrastructure standpoint, but our new location is better for our residents who are less likely to have cars to get to, to the job opportunities in the reuse area and to transportation. Yeah, and I, and I think too that just just the, the, the other east-west connection um, below it um, is, um, you know, as, as, as David mentioned, it's a connection simply from uh, Main Street to Pan Am. It doesn't go further east or further west. It can't. There are there are, are that that is the termination of of that would be the termination of that movement. So we felt like we we're respecting the grid with a combination of a vehicular traffic um, coming off of Pan Am and then transitioning to this, you know, a strong multi-use multi bike and pedestrian connection to complete the grid from Pan Am to Main Street and, and together respecting that, that connection, the grid connection, and also that view corridor that, that David mentioned, we, we think that's important. Um, so, so that, you know, as Josh mentioned, um, you know, we're picking up other elements of the specific plan um, in, in this, you know, kind of call it an alternative grid um, in that location. And then, you know, when, as Sarah mentioned, you move the collaborating site from, from Main Street over to Pan Am, um, you know, you, you pick up that connection, the opportunity to connect uh, from Skylark in Site A up through West Midway and up into um, the, I guess it's, maybe it's Ardent Way, David, that, the one to the right, um, that, that connection becomes very strong, whereas in the specific plan, it wasn't possible. So, you know, we, we feel like we, we've, we've enhanced the grid in that location um, and, um, and, and it, you know, connect down into Site A and will connect up into the, to the neighborhoods as, as they develop to the north. Um, so, um, you, you know, that's kind of some, some additional thoughts. Thank you. Um, I have a few questions mainly to um, Andrew. Um, first question is, my understanding is that um, this parcel initially, there was an RFP that went out. Um, mm -hmm. First developer fell through, so now we're uh, working with the Brookfield Catella um, group to Catella. And um, question is, in in our agreement with the, um, with the developer, with the applicant, is there a um, preset number of units that they need to deliver? There was a, um, 
there was an original RFP. Uh, Brookfield Catellus was the was the you know selected team right, right. from that RFP. Um, there was an original um, when that RFP was done. There was fewer units in the project, um, and then city staff, as we were doing the housing element over the last year, um, we came back to Catellus and Brookfield and said, "Hey, we you know we we would actually." prefer more units. So um, we asked them to them. give us more units. Then yeah, I mean, if they can, you know, if they wanted them, I mean, we, there's plenty of places to put more units at Alameda Point. Um, the, but since they're building and we thought adding more density, one of our initial concerns was, um, you know, basically all these blocks are about 23 units the acre. Um, and um, so we were trying to get the density up. Okay. Thank you. And then, you know, um, once again, to try to get higher densities, more affordable, typically, um, right. sort of our thought. And since they were building here, you know, rather than taking the extra units and spreading them out around Alameda Point, let's try to get as much density as possible as close if they to want the it. terminal. If, if they wanted it. it, yeah. And they said, yeah, yes, thank you. Yes, please. Okay. Then um, second question, I just have three questions. Second question is how much um, leeway does the planning board have to deviate from specific plan? Uh, that is your, there is, there is, it's not a mathematical kind of calculation. It's more of each of you, when you vote on this, if you want to vote yes on this project, you have to say, I think it's, you have to make a finding. You have to be comfortable with the finding that it's consistent with the specific plan. Um, I think what the, the developers are, are making the argument that they think it is consistent and you can make that finding. Um, from staff's perspective, we were fr quite frankly struggling with how we could recommend the findings. So that's why we brought that you could, you know, that we, if we were the camp planning board, we wouldn't have been able to make the finding because we had a specific plan that talked about complete streets and actually showed an actual street section. Um, then, so, you know. What if well, you disagree? What if you disagree with a specific plan? Well, that's not, if you think the specific plan is wrong, then that's a different question. And we should probably go back to the city council and say, hey, we can't make the finding of consistency with a specific plan. Do you want to change the specific plan? Or do you want to change sort of the entire direction of the RFP, which was, hey, we're looking for a developer to implement our specific plan. Mm -hmm. um, that's, it's, you know, that you certainly, you know, that's certainly a third, a third approach. Okay. That, you know, and, it could work. I mean, that's, it's not out of the question. That, no, that I just want to know what, what our parameters are. Yeah, no, I think there's then, all three of those. And then the third question is, um, this site is under Main Street Neighborhood Specific Plan, but what about um, the, the Pulte site that's currently under construction, almost done behind Target? not within Alameda Point, not within no, the main street. So it doesn't, okay. That's why yeah. their side plans is are very, you know, each product type because I'm comparing this side plan with uh, just not too right. far. Okay. Thank you. Those are my questions. Or member T, do you have another follow-up question or do you have a comment? Uh, I have a question. Is this a density bonus project? Uh, it will, it will, they will be applying for a density, they would, it qualifies for a density bonus, 
because of the number of affordable units. They don't want more. They don't need more. They so don't, couldn't, couldn't, but they couldn't, can do waivers. They just ask for a waiver or a concession or something to say, we don't want to do the grid because of redesigning it would be too expensive and put the project in jeopardy. They could if they own the land, but they don't own the land. It's our land. It's the city's, the city is a developer. Think of the city as a developer. So, sorry, sure, I probably we, went dead. My internet yeah. is terrible. Yeah, you do. Can they Doesn't, just ask for a concession or a waiver to do the grid the way they want to do it? Um, yes, but the council doesn't have to grant it the, because it's the council's project. It's not their project. It's the council's project. This is city-owned land. This is, think of this as the city's project. So the council can decide, you know what, never mind. We don't want to sell you the land. So since they don't own the land, they can't invoke state density bonus. So I... If, if it were privately owned land, yes, but it's city owned land. So if, you, if you're basically saying, hey, we wanna get around the specific plan, then I, you should, we can, I mean, there's plenty of ways the council can get around the specific plan. They can change the specific plan. They could say, hey, we're just gonna waive the requirements of the specific plan because we can invoke our own, we can vote state law to override our own regulations. I mean, there's plenty of ways to get around the specific plan if that's what the goal is. Um, the, the, the issue that staff is struggling with is the planning board, the council, the community did a specific plan. It's pretty darn specific. And the question is to back to the planning board and council, do you want to follow the specific plan you adopted or do you want to not follow it? Um, that's essentially what we're trying to tease out in this conversation. Thank you. Um, Board Member Hamm, another question? Yeah, just, just that I'm, I'm staring at these maps on the screen right now. And uh, a question for Andrew, What's, is there meant to be a difference between the streets that, that were shown kind of like with the little, the green dots for the street trees versus the streets that has no trees indicated on it? Is that, is that meant to graphically indicate a different level of street? Well, are you talking about the, the drawing on the right? Yeah, the drawing. Oh, no, the drawing on the left. Oh, I don't. They yeah, just I mean, have. It seems like shows there's where no. some purpose for not showing the little green. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that's about. Um, it, the, the, a different drawing, the one that I showed from the physics plan, literally identifies which are the local streets, and it's that entire grid, and then it okay. shows the section you know, what yeah. that street should include. Okay, I was just trying to understand whether yeah. there's some, some kind of a difference from- Yeah, I don't know why there's no standpoint. trees on some of those streets. If you look at the cross section for what does a local street have, it always has okay. trees. Okay, they, someone got tired of- Yeah, somebody, the, the guy with the green dots <laughs> yeah. ran out of dots. Yeah, the, what's the end of the day? <laughs> yeah, okay. No, I, I just thought I'd ask just because yeah, yeah. this seems pretty obvious that for some reason they didn't color in some of, I don't some know. of the streets. I don't know. Anyway. Thank you. Um, if there's no further comments, um, before I open up all com public comments, if there are no further questions, and um, then the record reflect that board member Teague has um, left the meeting. Okay, and now um, also before I open up for public comments, a full disclosure, um, prior to today's meeting, I was able to meet with the applicant to review the project. 
ahead of time. So now that's um, open up for public comments. Um, thank you for having the uh, timer up. Um, first speaker is Mr. Doug Biggs. Thank you. Uh, good evening, President Ruse and board members. My name is Doug Biggs. I'm the executive director of the Alameda Point Collaborative, one of the collaborative partners in this project. Um, we're spending a lot of time tonight talking about a street grid commitment of the specific plan that doesn't apply to this part of the Main Street specific plan. Since day one, we've been adamant about not putting in major streets through our community that would divide residents from services and make it unsafe for children to travel through the community. From day one, the city has known and accepted and approved that there would not be streets running east-west throughout that whole neighborhood. They would only run through a part of it. And whether it's one block's worth or two blocks worth, doesn't really make a difference. There are not going to be through streets going east-west through that neighborhood. Um, that decision has been reinforced by experience of the last two years where any road into Alameda Point has become a raceway that the city has not been able to control and becomes a recurring threat to our community. The design as you see it presented tonight creates transit corridors that keep the community safe and promote ease of walking and cycling that's important for a community like ours that has less than 35% vehicle ownership. In many ways, the implementation of safe streets throughout the rest of Alameda actually mimics uh, the design, the mix of vehicle and pedestrian corridors that we've incorporated into our design. And we're glad to see the rest of Alameda catching up to what Alameda Point's trying to do. Um, we believe that the street and bike and pedestrian grid as proposed in the design meets the needs of our community and fundamentally fulfills the goals of the specific plan. We firmly believe that the changes proposed by Andrew don't improve the site at all and unequivocally will lead to the degradation of quality life for our residents as it will drive traffic to and through the middle of our community, something we've been fighting against since the beginning of this project. Uh, so please, you know, accept that it does meet fundamentally the, the specific plan, particularly as it relates to the West Midway neighborhood, which never envisioned having complete streets running through it. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, um, Drew, Dara Abrams. Please unmute yourself. Hi, good evening. Drew Dara Abrams calling in from the East End. And I'm very glad to see both the affordable and the market rate components of this project coming to Alameda Point. Um, three, hopefully really brief comments on the unit mix and on transportation safety improvements on the edge of this project. Um, first, I, I do have to say it's unfortunate to see the developer proposing so many three-story townhouse style units in the, mar the market rate portion of the site. Uh, those types of units do come with a large amount of dedicated ground floor parking. They don't meet universal design accessibility goals and they can't be easily mixed with other unit types. I, it may really not be reason to delay this project, but every time three-story townhouse style units are proposed at Alameda Point, um, I for one do think it's worth considering a more advantageous mixture of units, particularly more stacked flats, centralized parking, and uh, features that can really um, um, 
uh, increase the overall density. Um, I'm not sure if the street sections in this proposal are meant to be detailed, but I did want to um, put a point on the street sections that show bike lanes directly on Main Street that aren't protected from motorists. Um, my understanding is the MIP multimodal network specifies bike facilities separated from auto lanes along Main Street um, that are that would be much safer and important both at this point in time and as the sites built out more fully. Um, again, not sure if this that's the right time to bring up this feedback, but I did see that on page 22 and uh, hope that goals for safe cycling facilities will be met. Um, also on the, the edge of this project, um, at Main Street and uh, Stargill Midway, uh, my understanding is the city's been flagging that as an intersection for uh, a modern roundabout to increase uh, safety, decrease speeding by motorists. Um, again, um, I don't wanna overload this project, especially the affordable portions uh, with more requirements, but I am curious to hear more about how the overall project can contribute in some capacity to improving that intersection, uh, as well as all of the um, the parts that it adjoins. So thanks for taking these comments and have a good night. Thank you. Um, apologies, my internet cut off, so I just joined the section again. Um, Donnie, would you mind calling the next speaker because now I can't see it on the screen. Sure, uh, the next speaker is Karen Bay. Uh, good evening, planning board uh, developers. Um, I apologize. I, I got into the meeting sort of in the middle of your your meeting, so I may have missed a couple of things. Um, I just want to comment. I can appreciate the developer having to um, provide what I think what almost 40, 50 percent affordable. <laughs> so um, it does sort of constrain the project. When, when you have to provide that much affordable. Um, and I wanna say that, you know, I don't want us to lose sight just because it's um, Alameda Point and that we don't make it a mixed use development. Um, I, I do, I hope that we don't lose the, the, the open space um, and I, I think that's an important uh, component of a mixed use development is to add a, some open space. Um, I don't see, I think in the new plan, the central gardens go away if I'm uh, correct. Um, so I, you know, just because we're, we're adding increasing density, let's not give up the things that make our neighborhoods um, what we, you know, a quality neighborhood, right? Um, we don't want to give up things like open space. Uh, so uh, the other piece that I want to mention is the retail. I, I, I'm one of those people that are always zoning in on the retail. Um, and I know that the zoning for Alameda Point 
says that Site A and West Midway are the only two areas that a grocery store is allowed. So Site A doesn't seem to be uh, creating a, a developing a, a grocery store. So that leaves West Midway. And I heard that this building five is more of a community space. It doesn't sound like that's a grocery store. So um, I'm a little concerned that now we're not gonna have a grocery store at Alameda Point with all of the housing. So um, I'm not clear uh, for sure that, that that's what I heard, but I thought I heard that building five, the retail is, is a community space. It's not a grocery store. So if that's the case, then we need to look at the zoning and look for other areas for a grocery store or make that a grocery store. Um, but again, I, I, do, I don't wanna give up the mixed use uh, neighborhood. Um, I want all the components. Um, and I think we can do that and still have density. So I do support this developer. I, I know that they did a, a great job over Alameda Landing. Um, and I think they, they're gonna do a great job at Alameda Point. Uh, but I do wanna make sure that we, we keep the, the, the components of a mixed use project that creates a quality neighborhood, just like the rest of Alameda. So those are my comments, thank you. Thank you. Um, do we have any more speakers? Yes, yes, I have one more. That is uh, Marguerite Bichand. Thank you. Hi, um, President Ruiz and board members. Thank you for the opportunity to speak. I'm going to be very quick. Um, I'm um, the executive director of Operation Dignity. Um, I wanted to second um, Doug's comments. This is um, a design that makes sense for our community. Um, we're really, really happy to see this hopefully coming to fruition. It's been been quite a journey over many, many years. And we're really appreciative of our partners and then our, our work with Brookfield Catellus. Um, it's been a really thoughtful and deliber deliberative process, um, balancing a lot of object objectives. So um, we've been through quite a few iterations and we think that you know we've landed on a good design. So I wanted to thank everybody and I hope that you will support this plan. Thank you. Thank you. Any more public comments? No more, no more public comments at this time. Thank you. Um, we only have three minutes left, but I still want to open up for board um, comments. So please raise your hand. I can't really see it on this interface. So um, Donnie, could you see if anybody raised? Board member T, welcome I back. Yeah, my oh, sorry, my internet is terrible. Um, yeah, I know I drop off too. So I, I am on the fence, and I could go either way in terms of the grid, uh, where those streets are basically being replaced by green, uh, which I like. So I'm I have to read in detail more of the DA to see if there's wiggle room. The in the entire southern line. I would really love to see more diversity because at least in the diagram, it looks like it's an entire row of almost exactly the same. I can see where the other roads, you get variety 
but that the entire bottom looks the same. And it would be nice if that was really mixed up more. That, those are my only comments. Thank you. Um, other board member Cisneros, um, let's keep it brief. Board member Hom next. Uh, yeah, um, I'll also disclose that I met with the developer and their team. Um, you know, for me, uh, I think I agree with board member T that it seems like the roadways were converted to green space. So um, that's, um, I think that's a plus and all the, all the more consistent with the specific plan goals. And I think you know, that this kind of speaks to like the drawbacks sometimes of specific plans, you get too specific and um, following it to a T, it could be a challenge. So um, if we're, you know, trying to um, abide by like the overall vision and spirit of the plan, I think it achieves that. Um, and I, but I do appreciate the comments of um, wanting diversity in the housing types. And it seems like from the presentation that that could be achieved with the different materials, the different colors. So I guess just, I'm generally saying that um, I don't see any major um, glaring inconsistencies at this point. Um, I think uh, my only question or outstanding concern is um, what the, um, uh, can we remember brought up about the grocery store? Um, uh, so that that would be great to address that at some point. Thank you. Those are all my comments. Um, thank you, board member Cisneros. Um, board member Hom, board member Ariza. Okay, yeah, I'll make it real quick. You know, I mean, the specific plan um, is a specific plan in order to make the findings. You know, it seems. Like, is there a compromise? How much flexibility is there? I, I personally, in looking at the left side, you know, I actually don't like the idea of completely through East-West Street because it seems like it encourages speeding. But it, it seems like to meet the spirit of the specific plan that actually shows like two East-West, you know, I could see like a staggered East-West Street. I think distributing the traffic so that it's not all on the perimeter of the project Actually, when you talk about safety, you know, it, it, the more the whole concept of grid streets is actually promotes more safety rather than less safety. So uh, I kind of to meet the spirit of specific plan, kind of like the idea of having some east-west connection that may be staggered but not through. But I also like the idea of these greenways. You know, so I wouldn't necessarily say that that they all need to be complete streets. I actually like uh, a more enhanced um, bikeways, you know, pedestrian sections through two of those sections um, east-west. I think that makes, that would be kind of a good compromise in my mind where I could probably make the uh, specific plan findings. Though like Commissioner Teague was mentioning, I, I think I would really want to read the language a little bit more to see how much leeway we have. Uh, the second point is, Given that we gave the developer higher density, I am the, the fact that these I like the fact that the architecture is six different or seven different styles. So, but a little bit more variety in the housing types. I'm not sure how much they need to be intermixed, but to me, you know, if we if it if we do actually allow five stories, it'd be nice to see a, a variation of housing types from three to five stories because it does seem to me 
that is looking awfully uniform, even though I appreciate the, you know, bringing in different architects to design different blocks. So anyway, those are my two comments. Thank you, um, board member Riza. And then I'll close. Yeah, um, I think I just wanna say that I, I agree with staff on both points. Uh, for me, the advantage of having the streets with cars and bicycles and pedestrian ways is that you manage the scale of the blocks. Um, so, so then the whole fabric of the city is walkable or, or can be accessed by different modes of transportation. Um, so uh, even though, you know, kind of looking at it from the top, it looks like it continues. If it's just for pedestrians, I don't think it's as safe, as safe as it would be if it was a real street with vehicular traffic from cars pedestrians and bicycles. Um, and then I also agree with staff on the, you know, the need to have different typologies to make the, the streets more dynamic, um, kind of more referential to what the streets of Alameda are. Um, so just, yeah, I think those are my comments. Thank you. And um, thank you. Um, Applicant and staff for your patience to stay this late. Um, quickly, I um, can support the grid because I this the proposed plan because I feel like it is a better plan, especially given that the um, reshaped site has switched to the western parcel closer to Pam Am. Um, so the I think the north south connection is more important than the east west connection, um, and there is a connection on the uh, I think on one of the one of the parcels it does connect out to Main Street, mainly because um, Main Street is not an east west connector anyway. You can't really drive across that, so I don't feel the importance of connecting east and west, um, but more so north and south, which this plan does provide. I agree with the board member T's comment that the, um, along, I think that's West Tower Road, it really needs more di diversity. And I have expressed that to the applicant earlier on during our um, um, previous meetings, so. Um, those are my comments, and I hope that in this short period of time, we are able to provide you with some feedback. Board Member Hom, do you have new comments? Oh, your hands no, up? no, I just forgot to. Okay, I'm, I'm, all right. Yeah, because I have, I don't, so, I don't see any of you guys because I just have to map up. Yeah, I know. It's, it's hard for me on this different device. Um, so with that said, um, it's past 11.30. And um, I will conclude this portion of the agenda and um, every all the agenda items following um, 7E will be continued to the next meeting. So, Alan, should I? That's right. We meeting? can adjourn, right? Okay, the meeting Thank is you. adjourned. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.